just heard Zero Trust's Birch, which will be coming out as a single later this year on EBR. This was actually the debut of this track. I'm really happy that Zach and the guys were able to to drop this one on this podcast. We're going to get into everything going on with the project later on the episode. But first, welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. I'm going to jump into the back end and do all that talking we usually do and just get it all out of the way. As I've said in a lot of episodes, everything that we talk about on here, you can also look at tihcpodcast.com. I do a little write-ups, add some other links. You can contact our guests very easily from there. On top of that, the best way to support us, follow, subscribe, tell people about us. If it's uh, Friday and you see us posting, please repost. I'd love to get the word out on these episodes. I love the conversation we had. And more importantly than anything, I love the constant feedback. I write back to everybody who writes me, be it DM, comments, etc. The support is the energy and the motivation for me to keep going. And I appreciate that. I mean that sincerely. In listening to the draft of this podcast, I'm reminded just how many awesome people in hardcore just really aren't well known by name. But needless to say, our guest tonight, Zach Thorne, completely changed hardcore before he was even 18. He and Mikey the Bull, his longtime partner in crime on the guitar, managed to create a sound which is now unfortunately referred to as Beatdown. At the time, they were in Retribution and later would be called Bulldoze. But it was their mark on the undeniably hard, and at the time, very original breakdown style that completely revolutionized hardcore, for better or worse, depending on your mileage. For me, I've known Zach since I was a teenager and have kept in touch through just seeing each other at shows, booking his bands as they've come through, and just him coming down and visiting us, just hanging out with Maximum Penalty or something. This is a guy who every time you see you see him has a huge smile on his face, and he's just a great guy to speak with about hardcore, about heavy metal, and this podcast is a great representation of any number of conversations that he and I have had over the last 20 years. I really am excited to see someone like Zach get a little bit further out there and people to know him by face and name. We talk a little bit about all the stuff he's done, and we've been touch on the project that you heard earlier in the episode. Again, that was the debut of his new project, Zero Trust. I already know anyone who enjoyed episode seven, Richie Crutch, and some of the other episodes we talk about the good old days are going to love this one. All you young bucks, get the uh, iTunes note or the uh, paper and pen, write some of these old band names down and start researching. We go deep, we talk a lot of old school shit, and... This is just one of my favorite conversations that I've brought to light. Thank you. Let's roll. We're talking to Zach Thorne, who is a absolute foundation figure in hardcore. And why I say that is no matter how many bands that come out with these chug breakdowns and the entire third wave of beatdown, I think we're at now, I put a lot of what the bands that are doing that now on Zach's shoulders Zach wow. and Mike are directly responsible for the, my, my opinion is the creation of the entire beatdown part of hardcore. I don't even like calling it beatdown as its own thing. It's still a part of hardcore. And he would go on to be in quite a few bands, not only bulldoze. And it's just one of these figures that no matter how 
many times you run into him. He's always got a smiley face. He's always got a new project he's working on. And he actually gave us permission to have an intro from his uh, project he had with Eddie Leeway. So if you ever heard that sociopath, that's from one of his projects. Zach, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And thank you for that beautiful introduction. It's a, it's, it's not without saying that without you and Mike, the landscape of hardcore specifically breakdowns would have sounded so much different. And uh, I'm, we're obviously going to get into that, but like I said, I like to start at the beginning. Um, you have always been in the Northern Jersey, New York area. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, actually when I was small, when I, when I, my parents are from North Jersey and then they moved down the shore. So I actually was born at Monmouth medical and I grew up down the shore until I was like in fourth grade. And then I moved up North. So pretty much now, but, you know, Bounced around, and then once once I was up north, I, I bounced around. I grew up pretty much in the Maplewood area, Irvington, so that's Essex County. So, and now I'm in Rawway, which is I guess Central Jersey. But yeah, I'm a Jersey guy. You're also our first Jersey guy. Uh, Richie Crutch was born in Jersey, but he's a PA hardcore king, so we can't put him in New Jersey. So no, you're the you're the first New Jersey hardcore guy we've had. And, and Richie, the foodie, so we should ask him: Does he order? pork roll egg and cheese or taylor egg and cheese i'd be interested to hear that well richie listens and we're, we'll get you an answer asap on that that's a definite um so what was the music in your house what was the stuff that you were listening to and what do you think kind of led you down the path to find hardcore punk um the stuff i was listening to in my house my mother and my, my father they were like uh i guess you would say hippies you know, so I was almost born at a Grateful Dead concert. And, you know, I listened to a lot of uh, 70s rock and um, Beatles, definitely big influence in my household. The Beatles, Grateful Dead, Allman Brothers, Leonard Skinner, you know, even the stuff like Black Sabbath. Like my, my mother, you know, saw Black Sabbath open for Black Oak, Arkansas. So the first time I ever heard Black Sabbath was through her. But, um, you know, I grew up with all that. And... Um, I think, you know, I, I got into music early, you know, like uh, I think my first tape was Billy Idol, Rebel Yell. Well, I know my first tape was Billy Idol, Rebel Yell, but I was probably in third or fourth grade. And then, you know, it, it, it just I really gravitated towards the music. You know what I mean? I started, you know, from there I got into like Van Halen and, you know, Ozzy, you know, and I was really hooked on that stuff. And I kind of stopped playing with toys, you know what I mean, at a young age. So. Yeah, but it was like when I moved up North Jersey, then me and my mother and my sister, we moved into a house because, you know, we kind of on hard times. And I was living in a house with this kid that he was a metalhead turned Guido, you know, but he knew what was up enough to be like, all right, you're listening to Van Halen and, and Ozzy. You got to listen to this. And he gave me Metallica Master of Puppets, which changed the game. You know what I mean? That's like huge influence on me. Cause that opened my door, my door to the harder stuff, and eventually, you know, to hardcore. But you know, to like Anthrax or SOD or Slayer, you know what I mean. But Metallica was a big one for me. Oh, for for me as well. I think hearing Master of Puppets was the game changer. Cause yeah, battery. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. it, it the um, the 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 house that I lived in was my mother, who was booking metal bands, and it was kind of like. You know, now looking back at it, you know, she was in her early 20s 
and it was a bunch of you know house parties with hair metal shit and some of the people were into like the thrash stuff and i remember the first time someone put on metallica and showed me i was just fucking floored now yeah what when did you start picking up an instrument um i started i started like messing around the guitar early like fourth grade you know like soon after i listened to van halen eddie van halen wants me to play wants to maybe want to play guitar like with Billy Idol, I had the haircut, but once I heard Eddie Van Halen, I wanted to play the guitar. So that was like, but, you know, I did that and then I was skateboarding and I was still a kid. You know what I mean? So I, um, I wound up falling, uh, skateboarding. I fell off my skateboard and I dislocated my hip. I walked on it for a year and then I finally found out I had to get pins in my hip. So long story short, I was a horrible skateboarder after I fucking dislocated my hip. And I kind of came to a crossroad where I had whatever money I had from Christmas or whatever, and I was going to buy a skateboard or a guitar. And then I went with the guitar. So I said I was like seventh grade. And that's when I, you know, really started, you know, learning. Like back then, you had to know how to play all those Metallica riffs or Anthrax riffs, Slayer riffs. You know what I mean? Like amongst your other metalheads or whatever it was. It was like you had to know that. So I started like really getting into all that. So like seventh, I'd say like seventh grade. When you think about it. And you and uh, we've had this conversation quite a few times. The style specifically that Metallica brought was a very like down picking, fast attack, and that picking was not heard as uh, <laughs> earlier on in, in the early Slayer stuff. And I, I've always felt like Metallica made everybody else in Thrash had to step up their game. Oh yeah, I always listen. If if cats ever want to argue, you know Slayer or you know top four arguments, like I always put Metallica at the top. You know, yeah, I love Slayer. Don't get me wrong, I get it. Angel of Death, uh, Rain and Buds, you know all that. But Metallica, I think people front on them because you know they did the Black Album, which was a rock record, and then they kind of turned left or whatever. But you know, so what? They still put out those four records, you know, or even two records, depending on what people want to say, because I know people might, you know, talk shit about Injustice Raw too. But, you know, to me, Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets are just such masterpieces, you know, with Kill 'em All and, and Injustice Raw falling close behind that they really set the bar for everybody. And if you go and listen to any of them old bands, nobody was like that, um, which is, you know, all James Heffields. You know what I mean? No, so, I absolutely, uh, yeah, I absolutely, I, I, I agree one hundred percent that that is something that you see often now in uh on the younger world with the Twitter, where there's no linear concept and context, so they pick these random bands and these random things. Like, you got to admit that, like the other day, I, I read something that was like, you know, Testament was always better than Megadeth, and I'm like, listen. Listen, we gotta listen. My the first stage dive I ever <laughs> took was during Over the Wall Testament at the Trocadero. That being said, there, there's just some things that are in place, and I think Metallica falls in that line of by people's standards later on, you'd find people that would diss Metallica as a whole for what they would grow into being, but no question the foundation of the riffs and those couple records, whether you want to put the first four, the first three, you know, they're the foundation for so much. So I, and you actually are one of the many people that I have had on this podcast who have also mentioned both Van Halen and black Sabbath as early in, uh, 
as early influences, not only in your music, but also in your playing. Oh yeah. Like Eddie Van Halen, people sweat him as a, um, and he just passed. So we might as well talk about this, but people sweat his whole, you know, solo style, finger tapping, all that other stuff. But if you listen to the rhythm parts, you know, something like say, ain't talking about love or whatever, you know, all of that's what led to, you know, that thrash really tight picking down picking, um, uh, you know, mosh parts really you know that that all comes from eddie van halen and tony iomi you know what i mean because they kind of set the foundation for that and then metallica and slayer whoever else they just took it a notch further in my opinion no linearly that's exactly and that's a lot of what happens with music is people come and they have their opinion based on their experience and not realizing there's a linear progression which is a huge reason why i wanted to have you on the show not only just because we've been friends so long and i really love your bands but you in your own right would eventually have so much to be as an impactful force as a foundation for so many different things that would come later in hardcore. So you're at this point, you're in, um, you're in middle school, you're starting to shred. You got some uh, metalhead friends. Are you guys fucking around in bands yet? Or are you guys just going to someone's house and just jamming? Um, not really just kind of playing. Like uh, there wasn't a lot of people that played, there wasn't a lot of metalheads. So people like you, you knew who I was kind of, cause I played guitar or you kind of would just meet people. And there wasn't a big circle of, uh, even metal fans, you know? So that's kind of like, again, you know, I know everybody talks about this, but this was pre-internet. This was pre, um, you know, you had to find, go out and find records and find bands. So you would talk to anybody that had a fucking, Metallica shirt or, you know, even whatever poison shirt or whatever, whatever, whatever it was, it was a common bond that you had. So, um, now nah, I really wasn't jamming with anybody. There were a couple of people in my neighborhood that I knew just played guitar and, you know, we would, you would just pick up their guitar. They would show you riffs here and there. But, um, it's funny cause one of the first guys that I met that I started jamming with was George or Puda. And I met him in the park and I, I want to say, I want to say he had an anthrax shirt and that's how we started talking. And then he heard that I played guitar from some people that he went to school with in Irvington, you know, because there wasn't a lot of metalheads in Irvington. So, you know, it was like he knew me through word of mouth. And then um, from there, his best friend was Mike, you know. Um, so we all started kind of jamming together and um, writing songs. And then Mike's cousin is Chris. So... You know, Chris was older and he was he, we met him and he kind of was um, I don't even think I thought he kind of thought of us as a joke or whatever. until he heard, you know, we had songs even, you know, from from the beginning, we had catchy songs. I think that riffs that ended up on, on the Bulldoze uh, demo or seven inch or whatever it was. You know what I mean? So that's kind of how it all came into effect. And um, it, it wasn't it was probably when I was a freshman that we really started jamming as a band and around the same time i started playing in like a like a funk type red hot chili peppers type thing you know what i mean it was called uh cup contents under pressure but um and then it turned into this other group booty time lounge bands you know it's kind of ridiculous but we would play up at the um obsessions in randolph they used to do uh, all ages nights or teen nights and um that was cool, too, because my drummer listened to a lot of weirder stuff like, you know, Primus or, or Red Hot Chili Peppers or, you know, s s stuff that I wasn't really into, uh, Fishbone or whatever. 
Um, but uh, from there, that opened my 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 eyes to more than just metal. You know what I mean? So I was getting into a lot of stuff, and at the same time, hip hop was getting really big too. You know. That's what I was so wondering. We, I was wondering. Actually, going to get to that, and I'm glad you segued. So, despite being in so many of the some of the most heralded New York hardcore, New Jersey hardcore bands, you've always had a diversity in not only what you enjoy, but also the style and the influences that come into your playing. And, you know, I feel that the thing that is not seen as much in hardcore today, because hip hop had gone from when we were younger, it was um, underground and on the radio at the same time to now hip hop is very, very mainstream while hardcore stayed in the underground for the most part. So there's a, there's a moment where, you know, you and I were very similar in the way that you know, we came from metal, found hardcore, loved metal, loved hardcore, but also had a lot of awesome influences from the burgeoning hip hop scene. And uh, a sidebar, I know that you said you were in a funk band. Uh, I always say this about Bouncing Souls, you know, Bouncing Souls eventually would be a punk band, but they started out as like a college, like a college party funk band in the beginning anyway. So it's not surprising that you would be in a band like that because that was something that at that time frame was really popular, was funk and with the college crowd. Yeah. And it was kind of underground too. Like Red Hot Chili Peppers were playing shows with what, Suicidal Tendencies or whoever. And it was like, I probably thought of hardcore music as like skater music. You know what I mean? When I was really, you know, before I really knew what it was. You know what I mean? So it kind of all fell under the, the same umbrella even with hip-hop like i was down i might have been down with a kid because he had a public enemy shirt and you recognize that from anthrax or you know it was all on the same level you know what i mean def jam was putting out slayer records and hip-hop records and it was uh you know like you said it was more of an underground thing so i think even those two worlds kind of respected each other back then because it was definitely more i was definitely more acceptance of hip-hop kids being a metalhead than like guidos at the time it was like that was beef (laughs) You know what I mean? No, that but, was uh, definitely that was definitely like uh, for for here. There was like the legit hip hop heads, but there was definitely like a different. We didn't have Guidos. We didn't have that many Italians in Philly, but uh, you definitely had this. Uh, you know, fuck you for being a long hair and weird juxtaposition of people that didn't listen to rap, didn't didn't listen to metal, but they were like the real enemy, like these fucking jerk offs from the neighborhood. Yeah, I yeah. Think that's I think you were still obsessed with like Bruce Springsteen or some bullshit, but they were always dickheads. Yeah. But, you know, again, those people grow and evolved into, you know, a lot of them might be into hardcore now or something. But it's funny because back then, especially in the 80s, it was very, you know, clickish almost with the scenes. But hip hop and hardcore and metal, it kind of all blended. Or But but not to get off topic, I didn't get into hardcore till later, till probably around the freshman time, too, when I um I went to see I went to see all these bands. And I guess I kind of knew what hardcore was, but I really didn't know it as a whole scene. And then we went to go see Mucky Pup at, in Irvington at uh, Cricket Club. We won tickets off SOU. And they were opening up for Leeway. And this is like Leeway in their prime, like Gibbons, you know, all of them. The whole band's uh, original lineup, two guitar players. So Mucky Pup, who we knew, they were great. And um, I just remember going in there and I remember seeing all these skinheads who I didn't have a good opinion on skinheads because 
we had played up in Randolph and there were all these Nazi skinheads that came out. And, you know, my drummer at the time was Jewish or whatever. So, you know, there's no beef, but they were just assholes. And I didn't get the whole skinhead thing. So when I went to see the show in Irvington, they were like skinheads with like fat laces and fucking shell toes and, you know, all these other dudes with like socks on their heads, you know, tied up like, you know, this is early 90s gold teeth or whatever. And I'm like, yo, this is crazy. Like, I didn't even know it, but I was like, yo, this is what I am because I was listening to hip hop you know, maybe dressing more that style, but, you know, still a fucking metalhead, you know, so seeing a band like Leeway, like back to what you were saying about the down picking, it was just crazy. You know what I mean? And then you had Eddie was like a B-boy guy and it just kind of all clicked. And then, you know, after that, soon after that, I think I saw Biohazard might've even been with Life of Agony, but you know, whatever it was like Biohazard had the record on Maze. Uh, Life of Agony had the demo was coming, you know, just came out and it was just a crazy time, sheer terror, you know what I mean? So then I just got hooked. And um, we, uh, we, we, we met the guys from Biohazard at um, SOU. Chris had a, uh, was the one that drove. So they were on the radio. And this was a little while after we had seen them. And Chris was like, yo, we should go down there and give them a flyer for whatever show we were playing. So mind you, we had a band called Retribution right now, which, which would turn into Bulldoze. But and it's crazy because Biohazard has a, had a song Retribution. When we named the band, we didn't even know that. But they uh, this was like we were more like a thrash band, I guess you would call it, or a crossover band. You know what I mean? That was kind of our steez. And that quickly turned into hardcore because as soon as we went to the hardcore shows and we seen what it was, you know, we instantly started like changing our faster riffs to more dance riffs. And, you know, it kind of came into our whole style. You know what I mean? With the with the the bulldoze type shit. But, what's, um, what's what's interesting about everything you just laid out was that we've had Richie talk about that entire that entire sound and that time frame when like Life Agony, Biohazard, those bands are breaking out. And uh, a couple podcasts back, we actually had Tim Bohr, who was beginning his booking career at that time, booking bands like Life Agony and Sheer Terror, and had mentioned the importance of that scene in Brooklyn and what it did for not just for metal, but also for hardcore. So it's cool to see that the same impactful stuff that affected you guys had also had impacts on people that we've had in the show before. Uh, One thing I wanted to bring up that I thought was great that you said obsessions for those people who have no idea where obsessions was pre-internet pre Google maps. There was obsessions in Randolph, New Jersey. And I think, at least half a dozen times we would drive up from drive up from this area and we didn't know how the hell to get there, but it had crazy amounts of shows, whether it was like a, even into the later nineties had crazy death metal shows, hardcore shows, but you had a hit. We always had a hit or miss chance of finding it. Cause it wasn't on a major highway. No, it was in the middle of the woods, literally in the middle of the woods. So like you had to like stop at a gas station. Sometimes like, yo, do you know where this is? And I think like six separate times we might've missed seeing the show. But for North Jersey at the time, that was a, a spot where a lot of the bands were playing at. Yeah. And they used to have a tea night. It used to be, well, speaking of Guidos, it used to be a freestyle. Most of the times it would be like a freestyle club. And there was this guy, Bill, that had these muscle pants that used to book all the shows. And on a tea night, whoever played the most, whoever sold the most tickets got the best spot. So that usually was like 
third or one first, second or third. And then the last two bands will kind of play to nobody, you know? So, um, you know, the first band that I joined in the, that was a funk band, you know, me and the drummer were in the same grade, but the rest of the guys, they were older. So um, they were the ones that like took us up there and showed us what was up with that spot. And this is, you know, everybody's like stage diving and slam dancing. And, you know, again, this is at the time of um, probably Nirvana teen spirit. So all that shit was trendy too. You know what I mean? Like the slam dancing and, and, and stage diving and everything. So everybody was really into it. And there were actually really great shows, you know, for all these local bands. So that wasn't the introduction to it. But I remember actually one of my first hardcore shows too. I saw um, Agnostic Front on the One Voice Tour with, um, shit, it was Obituary, Malevolent Creation. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Might have been Deicide. But um, I caught them at that tour on there. And I, I want to say Freddie. Um, was singing i can't really remember because everybody was so new but i do remember this i remember i was uh i was stage diving doing like obituary or whatever and somebody threw me on top of kevin and i knew it was kevin because it was some guy with like a tribal tribal tattooed around his neck and i saw him beat the living shit out of somebody at the biohazard show in irvington and i think kevin picked me up by like my body and just threw me across the room I said, all right, let me go get a soda. Maybe this, maybe I should sit this one out for a second. <laughs> <laughs> my uh my first Kevin experience was uh downset, dog eat dog, madball, and hard response at the JC Dobbs. And during Dog Eat Dog, I was hit by a Kevin backhand. Ouch. And th- what I remember is seeing Kevin and I and you know, I could fucking, I bust his balls with him, but I'm like, he had the biggest man ball shirt I've ever seen. It was like, cause he was like such a big fucking dude. And I was mad young. I was literally like 14 years old and he hits me. I don't remember being outside. I remember eating pizza across the street and my boy, Carmen, who's dead now came over like, dude, what the fuck you doing? I'm like, we eat pizza. And he's like, where, where have you been? And there's an entire clip of my life that's just gone because Kevin hit me. And the only thing I remember is talking to Carmen and then him being like, yo, man ball's about to go on and be like, fuck, are I going to go back inside the show? <laughs> Literally fucked me up. <laughs> I couldn't sleep that night. It was fucked up. <laughs> no, I, th- I think we played a couple of those shows too. I think we played the CB show with Downset and Madball and maybe somewhere upstate at the Sportsland Cafe or something, if I'm, my memory's correct. And Downset. Downset, they were the shit too. They were cool as hell. So... Did Retribution feature Kevin on vocals or how, and how did you link with him if, if he, uh, in general? Well, let's go back a little bit too. Cause okay. as, so we started playing shows. We, I think Retribution played obsessions too once. And then, um, you know how we met everybody else is we, um, we played a show with Mucky Pup and it was, it was funny cause booty time lounge band, I think was supposed to play with Mucky Pup and they wound up, we wound up breaking up or whatever it was. So retribution jumped on it. Maybe my memory's wrong, but whatever it was, I know that was the first night and it was on Halloween. And, um, we went and played in studio one and met like so many people that, you know, I'm still friends with to this day, like, you know, Reek rest in peace. And, um, they used to call him uncle Mark. I met all those yeah, guys Uncle Mark from hard yep. knocks. Yep. Yeah. Hard knocks. And he was like, basically back then that he was part of the New Jersey bloodline crew. And um, I met them and, 
you know, um, all the guys in human offense and IDK and backlash and strength, uh, who go by strength six, nine, one. And, you know, we, we, all, all of these wonderful bands from Jersey. And, um, soon after that, we played a, a basement show in John Stanley from strength, who's later was in for the levels, uh, basement his mother's basement. So, um, after that show, he said he was putting on a New Jersey hardcore compilation and wanted, you know, retribution to do it. So we did two songs on, uh, it's called a common cause, which was, um, you know, a Jersey compilation. So that was the first recording I ever did. And that was again in John Stanley's basement. We did it on, I think an eight track bloodline was on that strength was on that. Um, I forgot what other bands, but I think, uh, red from IDK had a band on there, a bunch of people. And, um, we came out with that. And then shortly after George just wanted to play bass, he didn't want to sing no more. So we started, um, you know, looking for singers. And, uh, at the time, Ket, uh, Chris went to the, um, we, you know, we, we, we got friendly with biohazard. So we go and hang out with them and see their shows and they shot the punishment video. So Chris went to the filming of the punishment video and that's where him and Kevin kind of clicked. And it's so crazy because that's such a legendary video that I didn't go to that video. Why? Because I had to go get allergy shots. How wack oh is that? Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> I missed however many appointments my father was going to take me. And I don't live with my father, so I would see him like every other weekend or whatever. And like I, we went to the fast lane the night before to see, to see Biohazard. This is when Urban Discipline first dropped, or maybe right before even. Might have even been before. I can't remember. But... Um, you know, they was like, all right, we're shooting a video tomorrow in Brooklyn. And I was like, nah, I can't go because I, I got to go out, you know, total. Definitely a thing I regret. But they all went to do that, which that that turned out to be legendary because that was basically a showcase for everybody. Right. It was you had, um, you know, Isaac, uh, Freddie from Madball, Saab from Marauder, Rick, you know, all of them went in that, in that video. Toby, Kevin. So. Um, that's where Chris met Kevin. And I think he told him that we were looking for a singer and then he heard it and was like, he's down to do it. But he was like, you got to change the name. Cause he was like, bio has his uh, roadie. So he's like, fuck retribution. You know, like, you know, like we were like uh, fucking, uh, what is it called? Uh, imitation biohazard or something like that. Or, or was it, you know, biohazard cover band or something. So, um, he, I think, I think Kevin came up with the name. One of his boys came up with the name, but you know, shortly bulldoze, you know, which was a good representation of Kevin because he just used to bulldoze through the crowd, and that his just, style was straight up, literally just assault the entire crowd. Yeah, so it was a pretty. In hindsight, it was a pretty good name. Funny, fun fact is we also we almost called ourselves, and thank God it came up with bulldoze, but we all almost called ourselves Mister Softy. That was almost the name of bulldoze. <laughs> what the fuck. <laughs> right, which beatdown would have been, had, sounded totally different if it was a Mr. Softy beatdown, but yes. One of the so, coolest things about what you did with Bulldoze in the beginning is when he says old school, the return of. And yet it's such a weird juxtaposition because I do believe at the time, obviously there was the Bulldoze, there was a Bulldoze uh, had began a whole new threshold for hardcore. And off of off of all the bands you had just mentioned but it was just a very cool kind of like i don't know where he got that from and i've always wondered what your thoughts was on that because it's like there isn't really like anything else but 
Bulldoze and maybe one or two other bands at the time that sounded like that? Well, I mean, at the time, like back at that time, I think everybody, you kind of had to have your own sound, or at least that's what it felt like. You know what I mean? Because, um, you know, like look at all the bands that, that we just named. Lee I was, that's what I was going to get into is uh, you with Bulldoze. You mentioned John Stanley, who had strength 691 and that whole Brunswick scene, which would later eventually have For the Love of. Bloodline right. sounded so much like their own thing. Uh, and you know, stick, he had two separate bands early in that time position of power, you know, like every band had to have something different. Otherwise you were kind you actually touched on it with the whole, why you didn't want to be called retribution. You were not want to be seen as being a carbon copy of someone else's band. You wanted your own shit. Right. And especially in New Jersey. I mean, you could see it now, even like dialing it back. One for one didn't sound like anybody else, you know. Like it wasn't until Seth would do Fat Nuts, right. where you started hearing like, "Oh, all right, this band's going to start sound like something else," you know, like similar to other things. So I think or, actually it's cool that you mentioned that. Yeah, or Victims of Society was actually it was one. For oh, that's one. right. Yeah, yeah, the band before One for One. Yep. Yeah, and Dan was my man too. Like we clicked. That's another guy that I I uh, met very early on. Was and Ray again, in the picture because of Irvington? No, Ray was never from Irvington. He was from Roselle. So I, I met Ray when they started one for one. But the okay, crazy, so that was later on. Yeah, the crazy, the other crazy part of how this all kind of comes together, or it's just a small world or a small scene, is that Raj and John, which is my original rhythm section for Agents of Man, um, they were in Hard Knocks, and some of those Hard Knocks songs turned into the one for one songs off the first demo, which I love. You know what I mean? Like that's. But, that's um, my that's my favorite era of one for one is up until that first CD. Right. So I think John wrote some of those songs who later turned out to be my bass player. Um, but they were, you know, they were another great group of musicians um, that, you know, they had elements DEC back then. Shit. I'm not going to, I, I forgot the name of their old band, but um, you know, they, were another great group of musicians that I ran into, but it's funny how everything comes together. You know what I mean? Because uh, they want I wound up playing with them so many years later. But well, you um, think well, think about it. Think about it like this, and this is just from like my perspective. You have been in so many bands with similar members. One or two guys switch a position here and there, and I think it's because not only is it because you guys are part of like the hardcore scene, but also because. You are all musicians and you need to throw Seth into the equation. You can throw McGee into the equation. You can throw these, you know, the Rays, you know, you can throw these extra guys into the equation. That entire area of North Jersey hardcore, there was multiple bands. And and I know we'll, we'll get into this later even more. But one of the coolest things about that thing is you could go to the pipeline because of so many people being at the shows. There was already so many bands that someone could jump up and share a member and you go to see one show and you'd end up seeing a jump up set from somebody else with like someone filling in just so you guys could play. And yeah. that's something that you guys carry on 20 years later with what you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. We still do that. And the first, first time Bulldoze ever played, actually we jumped on New Jersey bloodline set at a doggy dog show, which they used to at studio one, they used to sell that place out. So it was like, you know, we jumped on there and it was crazy. 
because it was just the hype off of all those bands. And again, you know, Kevin was repping DMS. So it's like all them DMS guys had bands that were really doing their thing, um, which was another thing that was crazy because um, I look back and, you know, one of the few first shows that we played was the Super Bowl Hardcore in New York at the Academy. And I want to say maybe only Killing Time had a record out or Warzone 2. But the majority of the bands maybe had a seven inch like it was all demos. And I don't know if that night sold out at the Academy, but it definitely felt like it was sold. you know, it was a big show. It wasn't like an empty room. And uh, it was just crazy how at that time there was really something big going on. You know what I mean? With all everybody kind of coming out at the same time, you could definitely feel it in the air, you know. Um, well, it was a total shift. It, it literally was like a total shift in in the direction of a sound that was not like the end of the uh, 80s. Yeah, I, the, the flyer for this show that he's talking about is absolutely insane. Killing Time, Warzone, Madball, Rejuvenate, 25 to Life, Break Down the Iceman, Crown of Thorns, Dark Side, Marauder, and Bulldoze. Yep. And the door yeah. price was $8 in advance. Yeah. And I remember playing that. And again, it was so funny because, you know, like, for example, like I got into Madball and then, you know, a couple months later, you know, I'm hanging out with those guys, you know, because those are Kev's peoples. So the same thing, like I had Killing Times tape and we're backstage and it's like, oh, there's Anthony from Killing Time or there's, you know, this guy. Like, it, it really blew my mind how small of a scene it was or how everybody kind of knew each other, you know, early on, you know, cause I was lucky enough to be in the mix with Kevin who knew all these people and introduced me to all these people. And then whoever I didn't know, he'd be like, Oh, you don't know who the grill biscuits are. And, you know, would school me on that and give me, you know, anytime we went up to practice, he would have me dubbing all these fucking, you know, side by side demo or whatever it was. You know what I mean? Oh, yo, listen to this. This shit's hard. You know what I mean? Well, this, this is actually something that I've always said to people when they start trashing different stuff. And it, it was really, really evident at the end of the nineties and early two thousands after the bulldoze had influenced the entire first wave. And then a second wave of these heavier bands where there was like a, yeah, fuck all that fucking pussy posse shit. And having known Kevin and knowing them older guys, like there was a reverence and respect for all of that mid eighties, straight edge hardcore and it was seen as like yo this shit's fucking badass but like we talked about earlier no one wanted to be the next gorilla biscuits they wanted to be their own fucking thing and that's yeah. why a lot of those bands shined in the early 90s to the late 90s they weren't trying to copy what someone else did it wasn't like a complete homage there was a there was a direct challenge to try to put something different out and i remember someone be like looking at me when I'm playing a punishment show, I think I like use today shirt. Like what the fuck are you wearing that for? Like, that's not even fucking cool. I'm like, dude, you today is one of the hardest fucking bands. What are you talking about? Oh, yeah. You know, like, like we were raised and uh, Seth actually Seth from one for one Seth Meyer, you know, he had a reverence for it so much. He kind of wanted to blend some of the heavier North Jersey sounds with that old school style, you know, like that was like a, something they were trying to do. And it's interesting right. to see now we're talking about, you know, we're talking about 1994. So, you know, you're looking at this from 26 years later, the kids who are talking about beat down now, they don't even listen to anything else besides whatever came out in the early 2000s. Obviously, Bulldoze, they have no reference to some of the most important parts of hardcore. And I've always tried to tell the younger guys, it's cool that you fuck with this music. But you remember the people that 
wrote the music that you're into were into this shit. And it, it's all tied together, you know? Right. Because we were more, you know, with Bulldoze, we were more, um, you know, metalheads, really. You know what I mean? So we started like once we started going to shows and we saw how because it used to be like, you know, it's kind of like the formula was like, all right, it'd be a fast song and then there'd be a drop which was like a dance beat, you know what I mean? So we almost like took it on some hip hop style, like where we were looking at it, all right, what's going to move the crowd? You know, same way hip hop did, where they took drop beats and they made break beats out of them. And then that was the beat, you know what I mean? So we kind of took that mindset and was like, you know what? We should just fucking do shit where it's just the song is, is a dance beat. You know what I mean? Like, let's let's try to write songs that are pretty much that, you know, and we and even with Kevin, I got to say, Kevin would be like, yo, fuck that fast shit. Because we had fast songs and he would shut a lot of that shit down. And I think it was because, you know, for those who don't even know him, you know, back in the day before he was even a singer, he was a big uh, presence in the pit, you know, like you were saying. So I think he was just moved off of the intensity of the hard parts. And um, I remember, you know, I guess that's that's what turned into the beatdown sound. But it was... Um, you know, it's definitely something we thought about, but we didn't think about it so much to be different, but it did just wound up being different. And that's what turned, that's what molded that whole sound. But if we just did it and didn't have Kevin, who who was a, a straight up hardcore, as he, you know, the labels with, with Bulldoze, straight up hardcore, Kevin was straight up hardcore. So he approached all those songs like a Youth of Today style or like a Gorilla Biscuits or the Green fucking new york hardcore comp or you know what i mean like he was in that mindset when and if i played when him, judge fuck. did the reunion when the judge did the reunion the first night uh, i was on the floor i put my hoodie up within the first 30 40 seconds of them starting off to would take it away i ended up running through and past kevin and i saw him wrecking people and i'm like god he's never gonna fucking change <laughs> like kevin <laughs> Kevin will always love that style of hardcore, man. Yeah. Well, Judge was another thing that was a huge influence and definitely a huge influence on Bulldoze too. Like Kev put me up on Judge and um, that was another, that's one of my favorite, favorite, bringing it down is one of my favorite hardcore records of all time. Yeah. I was excited to see them get back together. Now thinking about this and, and remember, because a lot of people listening are completely like way younger than us. Right. They're, you know, uh, Studio One, for example, it looked like a dance club for the most part, but it was one of the, at that time, one of the bigger clubs in the East Coast for hardcore. And the shows that you guys would have up there were just insane. And I don't think I was ever there with a show empty. Yeah, it was it was really good because it would be like whatever Lemores or the Ritz got, we would get in Studio One. So at that time, it was a lot easier for me to get to Newark. So that's a lot where I saw the shows. And I might see, you know, Prong one weekend and Biohazard the next weekend. And, you know, maybe even White Lion or a hair metal band on a Thursday night or something like that. You know, I fuck with all that, too. And then, um, you know, they would have Sepultura. So all these acts would roll through there. And um, it was just an awesome place. You know, we got really down with the bouncers we would always kind of like sneak in and um, see all these great shows. And the sound guy was in, in the back of the club. So I remember when he would go up to set up the stage, we would vic all his uh, promo tapes and CDs and shit like that back in the day. Um, but it was on the third floor. So it was a huge hall 
dirty place up on the third floor. And then there was, there were all these different changes. I think there was a go-go bar on the second floor of the basement for a time and these different bars or things that they used to try to make work. But, um, you know, again, that place was awesome. We used to go there all the time. And then you had a pipeline right around the corner that would do like the CBGB's type shows or, Dude, you know, that was my, that was my Thursday nights. I can't tell you how many Thursday nights we would go up there. I remember, I remember seeing you there and me and George would see you there. And we that was like, like yeah. that was so much that. And, and for those listening, we talked about it on other podcasts, but this is a long skinny venue. So I had like the bar section. You had this weird middle hangout where some merch was. And then you had the pit area and a mid-size, not, not head high, but not knee high stage, just right in the middle. So there yeah. was some stage diving, but you always had to worry because you'd have like uncle Mark grab the front of the stage and start kicking at people. And you right. had an entire North Jersey mosh style that was completely based, not one running in a circle, like in a lot of other places, but what moshing side to side or from the back to the front because it was long and skinny. Yeah. Yeah. And it was that time you kind of, same thing. You, you, you had to have your own style as far as dancing goes. You couldn't really bite anybody's style. You know, it was a a little bit different, but um, yeah, the pipeline was the best man. And they used to have all different types of shows too. Oi shows and punk shows and hip hop shows and, you know, those guys, Anthony Trance and Emilio were great people that um, that did a lot of shows. Bulldoze, we never even really played there. I think we got banned because um, there was a Doggy Dog and Beat Nut show. Um, and there was a huge fight that uh, we all got into. And I think uh, whatever happened, you know, of course, Kevin wouldn't let up. And um, we wound up getting banned there for life. But. Our fucking name, whoever put all the names of the different hardcore bands on the door, even after we got banned, our name was on the door. So it was just, it was just cool. It was like, you know, they even fucking, they're like, nah, you can't come here no more because you fucking caused too much problems. But they still had enough respect to put our name on the door with everybody else's, which I always thought. One of the things that I miss about the, the, the pipeline was that it was a place to go, even if you didn't know who was playing that night, because you knew someone was going to jump on. And in fact, uh, when Fury of Five did that remix song for their comp, when they did the one and all remix with the rap, uh, with the rapping, Jay Fury pulled up and had it playing in front of in front of the venue, like out of his car. And I remember a crowd of people who were hanging the show listening and be like, oh, shit, that's crazy. Like you always got put on to someone's tapes, um, you know, uh, all the dudes from the shore would coming up. You had all the dudes from like Elizabeth would come down, you know, like Money Grip would play. Yep. Uh, there was always some cool New Jersey shit, New York stuff, even like eye to eye bands from New York would come down. PA bands would come and it, and it, and it was a, not a great neighborhood. In fact, that's the venue that caused me to miss school so much on Fridays I because bet. the shows would run late. We would take the train from Philly to Trenton, Trenton to the um the main station in Newark and walk. So we would get to Trenton and miss the last train and have to just stay there overnight and oh just God. get on the first train home. That had to be a fucking horrible experience. Yeah, because <laughs> like until uh Steve Bush started getting girls that he knew who would like want to drive us or get our friends to drive up, like 
it was just like getting on the train and be like, oh, I guess we're going to sleep in Trenton. But I mean, you might sleep for like a three and a half hours until the first train gets you back to Philly. Yeah. All not all not safe neighborhoods, especially in no. that time. Now, but that, what are, that was nice, too. It's like now there's not a lot like, well, I guess on touring, I'd see more venues and shitty neighborhoods. But I think that's what you needed or something. It was like people let you do what you want and. I guess it was an element of danger too, going to your car or something that, that led to the, the I, I don't know. It's just a part of the package back then. And that's anywhere. Even the fast lane. You think about the fast lane. I mean, that was a fucking dangerous neighborhood too. You know? Well, that's a, that entire time frame. There wasn't this like access to hardcore. There wasn't access to the kind of venues. There wasn't a live nation. There wasn't these people that had, any kind of like fiscal investment in the clubs that would support hardcore punk. So a lot of our bands and in general, a lot of the, the kind of smaller venues that were housing it, house it solely because, well, we know people will show up. Like you said, studio one was always packed. I, I, I never seen an empty show at the pipeline because right. there were so few places. The bark of kennel making a big draw because of the fact that people would show up but they weren't the best places in town and they weren't the best towns for these shows to happen. Like, I mean, you could see, I mean, the places in Connecticut weren't that great. The places in Boston weren't that great. Right. You know, it was, it, it was, it was a case up and down the East coast at that time. One of the things I've said about bulldoze from the, from people who always ask is the infamy of the band outweighs the actual activity of the earlier time of bulldoze. Like you guys would play some shows, but you guys weren't playing the way bands play now, you know, like because there wasn't as many shows as there was now, you know, like, but the shows you did play were all high profile for the most part. Once in a blue moon, there wouldn't be. But for the most part, the bulldoze high profile name was more than the. You guys never did a big tour or anything. No, never. Yeah. It was all. But again, it was like I said, it was very big and. I remember um, I remember the first time I went to the uh, limelight was right after we played the Super Bowl and I was bugging out because when we went into the limelight and I don't, it wasn't even a hardcore night. It was like the people were just hanging out, but there, there must have been 20 bulldoze shirts in there. You know what I mean? The BD with the nothing but a bulldoze shirts. And I, th I thought I made it. You know what I mean? I was like, this is crazy. You know what I mean? That's my band. I don't know any of these people. And they got my shirts on. And um, it's just really blew up quick i guess because it just you know the circle that we were in or whatever it was and i guess it was a good name and catchy but um we never did any big tours you know but we would get on those big names like you know we might do a night or two of the downset madball show or you know whatever it was but never no tours one of the things that i loved about bulldoze not just a demo was the new york hardest songs yep and I remember, I forgot his name, but the guy that played in Full Contact put that together. And I remember we were playing at Bond Street Cafe, which was another great club in New York that had tons of, uh, you know, underground bands and it was a, a smaller place. But I remember that coming about and they were saying, um, you know, he was asking us to do it. And um, we went and the Bulldoze demo and and actually all the Bulldoze stuff was recorded at Big Boo Mini Studio which um, was in North Jersey. And that's where we did the New York's hardest comp. But yeah, all the bands actually track. It was actually what's cool about that comp comparative to some of the other comps at the time that were out. 
was all the bands tracked at the same studio. So they all had like a similar tone and sound almost. Yeah. And that guy, he, he made sure everybody, everybody sounded, um, on point. Cause I remember he was like, uh, he was tuning our guitars and I guess they weren't really set up. And he was like, you didn't get your guitar set up. And we're like, get your guitar set up. Like we didn't even know what he was talking about. You know what I mean? We we're like 15 years old, but, um, that's what I was about to tell you is let's say, uh, ask you as we're talking about this, you, you're, what are you, uh, 15 or 16 at the time? Well, let me see. I actually, I might've been 17 at the time, but Mike was probably 15. He's a little older than me. I mean, a little, I'm a little older than him rather. So I want to say when, well, let's see, I was born in 76, 86, I'm 10. So then 90. Hey, you're four years, you're four years older than me, but I think Mike is only like a year or two older than me. Yeah. So I was probably 17 when we did the New York's hardest half. Cause I would say that that was, well, was that 94? Or maybe it was, recorded, it was, it was, uh, the, it was recorded in 94. Okay. So maybe, I, maybe I was, um, 17 or 18. I don't know. I want to say I was 18 when I played Roseland, you know, which was again, crazy. You know, you think back, it's like, again, I felt like I made it, but we were young, man. And, um, you know, Kevin, and Chris was a couple years older than us. And I guess Kevin was like, I don't know, seven years it, older. I, I'm actually incorrect. It was 95. I had to look it up. I okay. remember, I remember, I remember specifically a friend bringing it to a diner from his car. Like it was like the case in Pulp Fiction. He was like, yo, check this out. And we were <laughs> like, what the fuck is this? And you read the band names and you're like, holy shit. Where'd you get this? Dude, I just saw one on South Street. You're like, are you out of your fucking mind? Where did like Jesus Christ? <laughs> yeah. And I remember right after we did our session, um, Isaac and Hoya and all them came in and was doing Scarhead. So we were, that was the first two things they recorded for Scarhead, correct? Yeah. I I mean, I, I to my knowledge, yes, I think so. I kind of want to do a whole podcast just on that comp, just because that uh that dude Sal who was involved. With yeah, Roger, that was the guy. That was the guy that put it together. Yeah, that guy Sal had that band with Roger UXB United Blood, oh. and Roger's songs were fucking dope, man. And uh, yeah, I I love that comp. That was like, and I mean, it's you know, that it fuck it will fuck you up. That comp is twenty five years old this year. Yeah, and it was ninety five because then it was so ninety three was the demo. I think ninety four was the seven inch, and the last thing we did was the New York's hardest, which was ninety five. And so for the younger people who don't understand the chronology of the band due to Kevin's notoriety and insanity and uh, Kevin had to go away for a time. Yes. And it, it was not like, I think by, if it, by today's standards, I think it would be all over the internet, but I mean, people wrote about it in zines and it was like talked about, but we're not going to like really address it. But what had happened is for those listening is at some point, Kevin had to go to jail Right, but you you guys aren't stopping, and now this makes more sense that George, who had been in retribution, just jumped back on vocals and let's talk about train of thought. Okay, so basically, you know what? It didn't even happen so much that Kev was going to jail, but what was happening was we did there were there were there were a lot of times that we caught beef or whatever, and Kev was very wild back then. As you know, what we, we probably all were a little wild, but you know, Kevin was definitely notorious for. Um, 
you know, being wild. So eventually bulldoze started getting banned from everywhere. You know what I mean? We weren't allowed to play the cricket club or the pipeline, like I said, or even studio one. I think the last show at studio one, we snuck Kevin through the fire escape to play a couple of songs, but we weren't allowed there no more. Um, so that started to be a problem. And at the same time, he, um, Kevin had, uh, this guy, Jerry, that was in, um, he was in a band with Mahmood. What was, uh, damn, what was that? Their old band. But that's how I met Mahmood and all those guys from upstate, Chris, um, from Mushmouth, um, cause they were in SWAT, right? Wasn't that the name of the band? Yeah, that was the name of the band. Yep. So, so I met them. We played, we played a show up in Pittsburgh, one of the first shows that we played out of state. And I met those guys. But shortly after Jerry, who was the guitar player in that band moved in with Kevin. Cause Kevin always had a house and he always had a couple people living there, you know, like renting a room or whatever. So Jerry started moving in there and then we, um, he started writing real metal stuff and like Slayer style. And that was kind of like Kevin was, was into doing that. And we kind of wanted to do more melodic stuff at the time. And, um, it was, it was half of Kevin, I guess, going to jail, but it was more that we kind of just wanted to do, do different things. And it was harder for us to get up there because we used to practice upstate and he started writing songs with Jerry. So it kind of just happened. And they, he did Terra Zone. And then yeah, yeah, did- that's what Jerry would go from SWAT. And SWAT was basically some of the guys from Mushmouth and Jerry. And that was Mahmood's boy. But then Jerry would eventually do Terra Zone with Kevin. Yep, and Fat Pat at the time, and yeah, yeah, Pat would be on it. Yep. So they they were all doing that, and then like I said, it was like we wanted to do something a little more melodic, or even something a little faster. You know, with some of the train of thought stuff was faster. So it it wound up being a natural progression, and then um, I don't even know if we can. I know I actually I remember having a meeting, and we were like, we're gonna dead bulldoze, and this is gonna be the last show. Um, But it was like, all right, we're both gonna do our own thing. You know what I mean? And um, shortly after, Kevin went to jail. But, you know, Train of Thought, we, we, we did the same thing. George, for whatever reason, now he didn't want to play bass no more and he wanted to sing again. So we wrote the demo for Train of Thought. And, um, you know, it was more melodic. And I don't, it, George wasn't even singing on a lot of the demo, but I was listening to a lot of, um, you know, things like maybe Snapcase or uh, Earth Crisis, or all these different straight edge bands that were, you know, approaching things differently and we just put our style and made it like a little more melodic and then our bass player um was his name was larry amazing larry amazing larry and he was again um you know just a great musician not just a hardcore guy but very into metal and songwriting and and all this other stuff and i remember he told me i you know we showed him how to play all the songs he was like well you know thanks but you know i'm gonna change every part anyway and i remember i was like this fucking guy <laughs> just came in there just trying to big dick you yeah but he came back and if you listen to the train of thought demo i think all the bass parts are amazing and he he did change every part and it just um you know it, it took us i think to a different plateau and we started writing and, and messing with melodies and different type of melodies a lot more and um then we tried to combine that with singing, you know, George started singing and um, that I, I thought it was great. And it, it, it was unfortunate because at the time everybody was kind of, you know, again, back to the timeline, you know, so now everybody's turning, 
maybe 20 or 21 and trying to figure out what they're going to do. And this one might have to go to school or, you know, so it kind of fell apart pretty early where people couldn't do it anymore. But um, I thought train of thought was great. That's like one of my biggest regrets is not really continuing train of thought. You know what I mean? Cause I thought it, it turned into that agents of man style or really was, uh, you know, had a distinctive sound with George's vocals and the hardness of the riffs and everything like that. But um, I, I think it stood out. And when I mean that also in the train of thought had a different approach post bulldoze and the influences already began where you'd started seeing a lot of bad bulldoze co- uh, copies. And I think we had friends from Jersey PA who all had some of the worst versions of them. Like we were obviously, you know, 14, 15, 16 and our friends bands were pretty, pretty carbon copy, pretty crappy, just, but that's what they were into. Love bulldoze. We loved all that shit. So I think when the train of thought demo dropped, people were like, wow, man, these dudes are already on to some newer shit. Like, and it wasn't like, fuck them guys are selling out. People were like, I actually had a friend be like, man, these dudes are ahead of the game because so much had been just trying to be copied. And I remember at the same time when you guys started doing train of thought, that was the end of strength that they did one more seven inch. And then I remember getting a demo for for the love of and being like, what the fuck? Like this is a, a whole different era began around that time for North Jersey, where you started hearing the more metallic stuff that that pure metallic that would be, you know, eventually be the burgeoning metalcore scene well, started funny, really coming out. Because train of thought, if it would have went on, um, you know, at the time, I don't even know. I know I was working at Woodbridge Mall in Jersey, and I want to say John Stanley was working there, or maybe not. Maybe I, we just had a conversation there, but we were talking, and we and he was going to start a label, and um, which I think that he did put out the for the love of stuff, but he was going to put out the Train of Thought record. You know that was definitely going to happen. And looking back, I wish it would have because there were so many. I mean, for the love of was another great band, Strength, great band. Um, but um, yeah, we were gonna we were gonna put out a record with them, but for whatever reason, you know, it's just people had to get their life together, and it never really continued. I think Larry um, wanted to do more stuff musically, which well, he has a band right now called Trillionaire that's amazing that he sings in, and um, I think George was kind of going back to school, you know what I mean? So it's just at that part, that phase. And then I kind of was like, fuck it. And I really didn't do music for a little while after that because I was so bummed out because, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, I wanted to do something melodic. So who was going to sing? Or I wanted to do this. And I don't know. It just kind of fizzled out for a second. But it was good. You know, we did the East Coast Assault, you know. um, But it never bubbled as much as, as a matter of fact, I think people were kind of like, at first impression, I guess, yeah, maybe people said we were, ahead of the game but you know when people first heard us they were expecting bulldoze so maybe you know we weren't just used to people just losing their minds and bugging out when we hit the stage and train of thought was different you know what i mean where people maybe listening to us or uh you know checking out the style but i remember one of the greatest shows we played was like with e-town it might have even been candaria at the pipeline and we played like hourglass and the whole room was singing it and I was like, that's great. You know, finally, fucking people figure, get it or whatever. And then I want to say we broke up like a month later. No, I, I actually think it was, I think it was uh, a typical to 
uh, your average uh, pipeline show, there was like four or five bands on the flyer, but then it being like, you know, three or four other added to it. And yeah. um, there was definitely, there was definitely that show. And I, I'm trying to remember who, there was definitely another one, the hell one there. Um, but, but that's the thing is, is at that time, if you were, if you were in the know, you knew that train of thought was that shit. The problem was, is there wasn't that many shows that you'd see train of thought at, but up in that area, you guys had that down. It's a shame that you didn't pursue it, but what's cool is, so <laughs> you never stopped coming around, you know, like some people at that time, I remember you'd see them if they were in a band, the minute their band was over, they would just go shelf everything. That's it. Yeah, I'm done. Put me in, put me in a closet, take all my hardcore shit away. And you didn't go anywhere. Yeah, no, I would always hang out. I mean, I had around that same time, I started working a job at a hotel at a front desk. So which was cool because they gave me two suits and, you know, my hours. I couldn't always go to all the shows, but I definitely would still go to shows. You know what I mean? At Pipeline, especially or Wetlands. You you guys came down for a Bad Luck 13 show. (laughs) I remember you guys came down for the XYZ show and it was uh, Bad Luck and No Redeeming. And we're all hanging out, and then you saw someone. Th- uh, you saw a terrible throw a crouch, and you're like, "Yo, what the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I definitely didn't know what I was coming. What, what I was coming down to see. I mean, I knew it was Bad Luck Thirteen, but I had no idea what that meant. So fucking, I think we went down there. I'm like hanging outside. I probably smoked a blunt and had a drink or whatever. And I go inside, and they're showing all these horrible videos behind, like on a projection, a projection screen with just. I don't even know what it was. It was just shit I didn't want to see. And I was like, what the fuck is wrong with these guys? And then fucking they started throwing like M80s and shit into the crowd. And I was like, this is ridiculous. But that was crazy. And then we went and, and we hung out and watched the video at whoever. Yeah, you were at the apartment with everybody afterwards. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, because that was, uh, that that was like that the Philly hardcore is. home base for a minute. That apartment over top of Condom Kingdom on South Street. Yeah. With Met. My man Met. Yeah, it was Met. Uh Jamie Davis Jamie Davis and Jay Goldberg from Bad Luck lived there. So like any given time during the week, you could pop into the apartment. But I remember you guys coming back and then we were watching the video from the show and just <laughs> like a whole house of people just <laughs> laughing about it. Yeah. And then I remember Met put on like a minor threat show and he was like pointing himself out in that video. And I was like, wow, this guy's been around for a long time. Cause when, when I, uh, <laughs> there's so many people that have said to me and like, you know, like in Tim, his episode, he was saying like, Met was an old head. And I drove Ralphie from the mob home from a wedding, actually Jay Goldberg's last wedding. And he was, yeah, man, Met was around. I'm telling you, he was a young kid back then. <laughs> and, and it just fucks me up because he's just such a, Met's such a maniac, but he really was around even at the earliest stages of hardcore. It's just fucking crazy. Yeah, and he didn't look that old. I don't. I haven't seen him in years. So shout out to Matt. We'll fucking. Uh, I was like, yeah, damn, that is him. But that was a crazy night. And shout out to Bad Luck Thirteen too. They're crazy. I remember, yo, when we were, when we when we were living in Irvington, um, you know, I I used to always bring my people to hardcore shows, you know, because I I hang out with all different people. So my man that was hanging out in Irvington, we went to go see. Some, you know, he came with me to. Um, what was the big show that uh, Bad Luck played up in Jersey at the in Elizabeth? Oh, oh the 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 it was a two thousand four Hellfest. 
Hellfest. Yes, yes, yes. Hellfest. So I forgot who we went up to see. Maybe Marauder or whoever. Sworn Enemy, E-Town, you know, whatever band I was going to um, check out that were my friends. And, you know, we wanted to show support for. So we went up there and I'm about to break out. So I go outside and I see all the bad luck guys and they have like a fucking pig's head or whatever it is. And I say, yo, I told my man, I say, yo, you know what? I said, hold on one second. Let's just check these guys out. I said, but just let's stand right here by the exit. He's like, nah, I ain't going to really be able to see. I said, hey, you know what? You, 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 this is a good view right here, believe it or not. He was, <laughs> <laughs> and he was glad he took my advice. Because fucking, that shit was crazy. And, yo, shout out to Bad Luck 13. Because those are all my boys. And um, they fucking destroyed it. And then broke the fuck out. And I was actually outside, too. And they were like, all right, let's get all and get the fuck out of here. Because I literally stood by that exit the whole time. But Bad Luck 13 was crazy. That had to be like the crazy show I ever saw a second to the one that I only probably saw five minutes of that you're talking about, uh, one of their first shows. <laughs> Yo, what's crazy is uh, one time we were driving up to a Bad Luck show at Boundbrook. It was with like uh, uh, George George Fox and his skinhead bands. A bunch of skinhead bands and Bad Luck 13 was going to headline basically as a fuck you because the club was being a dick to like the people trying to do shows there, like the punk rock guys. I forget the name of the venue, but it's a third floor of like this, like theater. And yeah, I remember go, that. And it was all plastic, like lawn chairs, like sit down those plastic, like $10 chairs. And I got a video of it. It's me, Bushy, George, who had been singing for blacklisted. Uh, we were driving in a van, broke down Jay Goldberg and his wife, his ex-wife, pulled over saw us on the side of the road and took us to the show. We get there. They play one song. Uh, your, your boy, Giuseppe from um, the ska band throws the fucking uh, uh, inspector seven. From, okay, okay. He grabs the fucking, the disco ball and throws it and it hits Steve Bush in the face and smashes his face. <laughs> his whole fucking shit was split and we had to leave that venue, but it was all skinhead smashing all these chairs. Uh, Roman candles, and that was like another one of them first early bad luck shows. And that was like all the North Jersey dudes, Cooper, old school Alex, everybody at the show just being like, Hey, fuck this venue, we're gonna destroy it. <laughs> yeah, I forgot the name of that venue too. I got an old video with all of us playing, like Train of Thought and uh, Hard Knocks and everybody. And it was a beat show, but yeah, was- those guys were crazy. And I up, up until that point, I thought I'd been around a lot of crazy people, but they took the cake. So performance wise, but the nicest guys at the end of the day, Hey, how you doing? You know what I mean? Afterwards, I'm like, Hey, do you want something to drink or whatever? Like, yeah, super like the, nice the, the nicest, that's all my old head. So like, uh, obviously hard Carl's my jujitsu partner. One of my closest friends, he has a hardcore comp that he has on Spotify oh. and it's literally like uniform choice MDC. And then the entire bulldoze demo. <laughs> He's going to fucking love bulldoze. <laughs> Like still like what is all time favorite bands. Um, so what's interesting about the progression of not just New Jersey hardcore and just East Coast hardcore is that a lot of different sounds started to kind of pop up. And we talked about Met, which kind of blends into the next thing we're going to talk about. So I was doing punishment and working for two damn hype records. Uh, Met would eventually open up a record store. And. He was like, yo, you got to check out this new Bulldoze band. They're coming through. And I remember me and you had hit, um, 
talked and you maybe either sent me a CD or put me up on the two songs, the headless and the other song. And the first yeah. time I seen agents was in Met store two damn white records on Passy on Gav. Yeah. I remember that night. So lead us up into uh, pulling, pulling the gang kind of back together to get agents together. Okay. So um, basically after that, like I said, I was working a lot and um, I went to see one of my friend's bands was practicing in this rehearsal studio. And um, Dan was practicing with his version of one for one at the time next door. So, you know, I was hanging out and, um, you know, th- th- my friend's band was practicing for two hours or whatever. So I went into uh, one for one, one for one's rehearsal space. And like, as I was walking in, whoever the guitar player at the time was like all pissed off and was like, you know what? Fuck you. Then I quit and all this other shit. So he just quit. And it was kind of awkward. You know, me even being in there, I was like, oh, this is awkward. This guy just quit. You know, it's kind of like when you're at your friend's house and their mother was yelling at them or something, you kind of just like try to act like you didn't know what was going on and just mind your business. So I was in there and I remember Dan was like, yo, you want to play in one for one? He was like, we have uh, an interview with Metal Maniacs on Sunday. So I was like, oh, shit, because back at the time, nobody was covering hardcore or, you know, things like this. So Metal Maniacs, maybe you would see a picture of Leeway or you know, whoever typo negative or something somewhere at the end of the metal maniacs magazine. So this was like a big look. So I was like, yeah. And Dan was like my man. So I actually, I started playing on one for one for a little bit. And, um, we did a, a couple shows. Uh, we played at the chance, um, with blood for blood. I remember that was a dope show and, you know, a couple shows here and there, but for whatever reason, I can't remember maybe one for one was kind of like fizzling out at the time. Like my, that might've been the very last version or whatever. And, um, we stopped playing shows and, um, right afterwards, Ray asked me to join elements, which had Raj and John, um, who, you know, would be into agents. So I joined elements. Uh, we played maybe one show. If that, uh, we definitely played one show. I could tell you that, but I think that was it. But we practiced a lot and I started, um, writing with Raj who was the drummer of agents of man and we started writing and we wrote pretty much that first EP that we put out so um you know he his right hand man was John uh who's the bass player who was, who was one of my favorite bass players you know him both of them my fit one of my favorite rhythm sections so we all started writing and eventually we wrote headless and then I showed it to George and then George just wrote it uh, you know, he came in to our rehearsal place, was hanging out. We were smoking blunts and he just wrote the song and came out with the song, basically what you heard. And we all got excited about it. And then, um, you know, we just really pushed it hard. And then at that time, we were like, you know what? We're going to, pr- you know, let's print. Let's try to do all this ourselves. So we tried to do the we printed up all the CD singles, which I probably gave you. And um, we we, uh, we went and recorded at. Um, Big Blue, no, I'm sorry, Purple Light Studios in Brooklyn, which was Candiria's studio. And, um, you know, they were the ones that put us on to that. I think we went to some some 4th of July party in Brooklyn, uh, and we were hanging out with the guys in Candiria, and it was like a rooftop party, and they were telling us to go to that studio, which we did. So we recorded that. We really clicked with the engineer there, Mike Borelli. Um, and we recorded that whole EP, and... Um, 
that just got everybody really back into it. You know, we we're really passionate about that. And it was it, to me, again, it was a new sound that we were creating. That was a mixture of uh, hardcore, but very B-boy style hardcore because of the rhythm section and, um, you know, melody, you know. So um, we started playing a lot of bills and, we, you know, we played. I remember we played at Mets uh, store. And again, you know, I think it was a little left field. So I don't know what people, you know, people would see the former members of Bulldoze and expect us to, you know, be paying, you know, these crazy, you know, beat down riffs. And, you know, maybe it had a little bit of that in it, but it was totally different. You know what I mean? So like train of thought, I think it took us a little minute for people to figure out what we were trying to do. But um, yeah, man, that's how that happened. And, uh, you know, um, we we uh, we had Chuck um, put out put out out the CD. He was a friend of ours. Yeah, he had that small label. Yeah. And we. um, we worked with the syndicate to promote it um, and they really got our name out and they, um, and we just kind of hit the ground running. And as soon after that, I met up with Gook who was in sworn enemy at the time, because I was going to school up at William Patterson and him and his girlfriend lived not far from the school. So I would like, I was working and I was going to school like two days. So I was taking all my classes in one day where I might have like four hours between the class. And I wound up going and chilling with them. And um, he was the one that was like, you know, he was really into it. And he was like, yo, you guys got a tour, though. You know, and at the time, Sworn Enemy was fucking heavy with uh, Jamie from Hatebreed because um, he had them under his wing or whatever. And he was kind of showing them how to do all the DIY tours. So um, one of the first tours that we did is uh, a tour with Full Blown Chaos and Sworn Enemy that Goo kind of helped us get into. And, um, you know, we did that 100% ourselves. And um, then one of the following tours, we got on a tour. Some band backed out of uh, Candiria and 36 Crazy Fist tour. And I remember we got the call that um, they wanted us to come on. It was like we had, we, we had two shows in one night, bro. We played with E-Town at Birch Hill, which is crazy because E-Town is like. That was know, a bond- record release show, I think. It might have been. That was been. a show. That was a show. I think also Irate was on that. that, and that was like a Halloween show, I believe. Unless it was a separate show, but there was a crazy show at Bird Show with E Town, and it felt like every one of our friends' bands was all on that bill. It wasn't a Halloween show because it was the summer. I know that. Maybe it but... was. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll try to pull it up, but I thought that there was a show. I'll continue the conversation. I'm gonna see what I can look it up. But they um. And I think the E-Town show we got after, too, because we had a show that was booked at the time. Headless, we promoted Headless Heavy and we, we went on Street Patrol, which is like their local bands and graduated from Street Patrol where they put us into regular rotation. So we were like getting like number one or number two song on SOU. They used to do a top 10 um, countdown every week. So, of course, you know, we were all lived right by WSU. So we would call SOU like 40 times a day to request our songs. So I don't even know if we had any fans or if it was just us. Ah, correction. What's the that? show was E-Town Concrete, Kill Switch Engage, Agents of Man, Shattered Realm, and A Life Once Lost. What's the date? Uh, that was, I think, 2001 or two. Okay. But yeah, that was the show. Yeah, so that so that was it. And I think later on that night we might have been playing with flashback to 
your mom in hair metal, but we might have been playing with the lynch mob at Packy's Pub. <laughs> at Packy's Pub. Or we might have just been headlining Packy's Pub. But it was crazy because agents, we would play hardcore shows and then we would also play with, um, you know, um, like rock bands or, or like new metal bands at the time, like these bands, Strip Business and um, trying to think of the other bands. But I don't know, all these different bands. So we would play with like a totally different crowd where they weren't really slam dancing. And we would even like flip the set a little bit where we play more melodic stuff. But that night we opened for, for E-Town. We hung out, tried to sell a couple shirts. And then we had another show that night at Packies. So we had a breakout, go play at Packies. Once we were done with this show, we all went home to shower and we got in a van and drove to Oregon at like four in the morning. We had to be there. It took us two days. We got there and started the tour with uh, Candiria which that was like our first official tour because they were playing bigger venues. You know what I mean? Now, what's cool about this is that it's 2002. You had started playing shows as early as 92. And this is like your first big driving across country mission. Yes. Or second, second, but yeah. Right, what was the, what was the first one you drove? all The, was- the first one was sworn enemy and, um, and full. Oh, that, yeah. That, or so that, that did go full us. Okay. Yeah, did do full U.S., but that was more like VFW halls, little spots, you know, where with the Candiria, we, we were playing, you know, um, actual venues, you know, like uh, whatever it is in Cleveland. Like, what's the place in Cleveland? Is it called Creepy Crawl or? Um, the Creepy Crawl of St. Louis. St. Louis, I'm sorry. But we would play like this, this Creepy Crawl in St. Louis or, you know, all the spots that I would later hit consistently, you know, we did on that tour with Candiria. Well, and that was just... Of- Kenny, you know, I would I would sit and watch Ken from Candiria every night. You know, hands down, one of my favorite drummers. And they were all great guys. They looked us out and got us on that tour because we didn't have a booking agent or anything. We just had Syndicate promoting the album. Yeah, you guys had been in a cool group of bands who are all hardcore guys who are all trying to get their bands to the next level. And I think what was interesting is because you didn't sound like a down-the-middle hardcore band, they were more excited. And when I say they, I mean the E-Town Concretes, the God Forbids, the Sworn Enemies, the Candirias. People were hyped to try to help agents because they felt like there was a different pot, like energy and something that you guys were trying to like uh, push out. So you yep. definitely had some shows. I remember, uh, was Raj still in the band this time or was this when Chris joined the band? No, Raj, um, Raj did that tour too. I think shortly after that tour, Raj um, was not doing the band no more. You know, and it was, uh, you know, it wasn't easy. These weren't easy tours. I, we, we did both of those tours in a, we had a shuttle van that. That's you know, what I was going to bring up the fucking, the big shuttle van. Yeah. So, and I think we put a picture on our Instagram recently. So this is a crazy story too. Cause fucking, we got that shuttle. All right. We had a shuttle van, like what they would take, drive people from a hotel to the airport. So. If you got into it, it was like a bus. You could stand up in it, and it had these whack bus seats all in them. So we got the van itself from a place in Irvington, a junkyard in Irvington. Just the van, you know, the motor was shot, whatever it was. Chris at the time, you know, he could work on cars and was like a mechanic. So he was saying he was going to fix it. And he was um, not playing drums. He was kind of our manager, if you will. So... He, I want to say that Chuck with on the rise bought the van because he wanted us to promote the CD. So we bought it and we got in it 
And I was like, yo, I've been in this fucking van before. So I look <laughs> down and I see an ens- ensign sticker on the fucking van, right? I was like, yo, this is Ensign's van, bro. And Cats were like, nah, nah. I was like, yo, I'm telling you, I sat in here, whatever show. I don't remember where it was. But sure enough, we had to get the title because it didn't come from the junkyard. So we had to like do whatever we had to do to get the official title. And Nate's uh, name was on the title. Wow, Nate Gluck. Yep. So we ripped all those seats out. Well, when I say we, me and Chris, which I probably drank beer and smoked L's while he fucking did the majority of the work. (laughs) We ripped all that shit out. We put all these rugs in there, built bunks in there where you could sleep. And that was our home for a long time. But um, I remember the first tour we did with no air conditioning and it was crazy. Um, And then the second tour, we paid like $1,200 to get the air conditioning done. And it worked on the way to Oregon. And I remember Chris was like, I got to put a little more Freon in it. In Oregon, the first show, he put goes to put more Freon in it and the fucking shit breaks. No AC. So oh. those first tours we did with no air conditioning. Crazy. And I remember, I'll tell a quick story about the air conditioning. We played the Whiskey A Go-Go, right? So, yo, I'm, you know, again, Van Halen, you know, I'm into, I, I, I could, I could, fuck with all that hair metal shit so we're on sunset strip playing the whiskey go-go uh, you know it's a big moment so we play the show show was good um and this is on the candiria tour i remember that uh rocky george from suicidal was hanging out and rob trujillo at the time was playing with ozzy was there and i was like this is crazy so we played the show we went up the street and um we were hanging out at the rainbow rainbow room so I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, but whoever was supposed to drive didn't drive. We all got drunk. So we wound up passing out in front of the Whiskey A Go-Go. So as the sun rose at like six in the morning, the plan was to drive through the night because we were going to be driving through the desert to go play our next show in Arizona. So I remember waking up hungover at like 6.35 in the morning, whatever time the sun was rising and getting in the driver's seat and starting our journey. And we drove through the fucking desert with no air conditioning. There was a time, I think we were all in our boxer shorts with a gallon of water that we just had to stop at the rest stop to buy with like on our chest, but it was literally hell. We almost killed each other. Yeah, was- man, them early days of touring, especially then when we really didn't know how to, <laughs> you know, like you got fucked if you didn't have the right shit. Punishment yeah. had a, a punishment had a, uh, we had all these stickers from the out to win new record when they changed their name from Mushmouth to out to win. Uh, and we used them to put newspapers over the windows. Cause it was so fucking hot. Yeah. Um, I gotta, I gotta, uh, <laughs> I gotta tell you, we actually played a show with you guys on your first U S tour. Chicago. Do you remember? Do you remember fucking right? Chicago. Yeah. I think so, they put a guy's money or something. They were playing crap. Bro. <laughs> I tell this story all the time. So our bro, Shane Merrill from Chicago, who still does hardcore shows, still books metal, still in the game. He had one of the first festivals that we ever went to. We went there with Dysphoria in 1998, like a two day hardcore fest in a hall. Just a dude. That's a big influence on me with this is hardcore. So I got to give a big shout out to Shane. And Shane was a Midwest dude who fucked with the hardcore sound from the East coast all the time. So this show was like shattered realm punishment agents sworn enemy 
uh, the killer, like all these, all of our friends in Arlington Heights, Illinois. And we pull up to this hall and there was that band of Veg Sevenfold playing and they were playing mad early before all of us were playing. Right. Right. That's right. <laughs> so obviously, you know, I know we're all, we're all like excited just to hang around each other. So a CeeLo game broke out and this fucking thing went four or five hands. People are throwing twenties in at one point, the whole show doesn't give a fuck about Avenged Sevenfold playing and everybody's by the merch tables ready for who, who's going to hit and win. And Puda fucking won the whole fucking hand and everyone was going nuts. And I remember Avenged Sevenfold being like, fuck this. You know, you guys care more when they were like stomped out and where they were like bummed. And that's it. They were done. <laughs> and to think about it, like those dudes want them to be fucking heroes and like, like a real rock band. And we're fucking idiots playing CeeLo on the side. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, this was pre event. Anybody knowing who the hell event sevenfold was, or at least I didn't. Yeah. We had no, we had no idea who the fuck they were and they were playing early. And the whole show was too busy involved with this fucking CeeLo game to give a fuck who they were. But yeah, Pudo had, Pudo had so much fucking money. <laughs> we're just like, this motherfucker took, took it all. Yeah, and then put it, yo, we used to, we were really starving back then, bro. Like, we were going to the rest stops, and somebody would have to distract the person working, and we were stealing sandwiches or Ritz bits or whatever you could survive off, like, real shit. So I remember that night, because we, we ate well that night. Poodle looked out. Dude, a little uh, that way. Uh, one of the tricks of the trade was to get your gas ahead of time. And remember, this is no credit cards. This is all cash. Yeah. They would go in, send someone in there with the money to pay for the gas and have them buy a soda. And if they only got charged with the soda, we said, oh, the gas station just felt bad for us and they didn't charge us. And you could drive away for years. You didn't have to pay for gas all the time. And then yeah, they shut it down. We never did that, but we definitely were on the go distract the person and, and, and everybody had a role and a laundry list of what they were going to eat. I remember oh. George, we made tuna sandwiches and I was like, yo. You're bugging. But go for the wrist bits. <laughs> Yo, fucking tuna in a van is not a way to go, man. No, not at all. Now, as you're, as you're traveling and doing this stuff, obviously you have Count Your Blessings out. How did you feel about like trajectory and the band and where it was going? And did you have people engaging with you to try to like push you guys to another level? Like, how was the band operating? And also, where were your heads at? Where were your specific head at in regards to agents and where it was uh, going? Well, when we were doing those first couple tours, that was just the EP. So Count Your Blessings wasn't out. So Count Your that's that's probably like 2001 or two. That's yeah. We do tours. Um, but then soon after that, we then Mike started playing in a band with us, Gook. And we got signed to the and did the Count Your Blessings with Century Media. And... Um, it was cool. It was crazy because it was a shift in the dynamics of the band. So, um, well, actually, you know what? We actually, let me back up with how Chris got in the band. So then we, we started doing the band a little bit with Rosario and on drums. And um, we had a tour to do in Japan. So we put the E out in Japan and was going to go do a tour over there. And then last minute, for whatever reason, Rosario couldn't do it. So he backed out of the tour. So Chris at the time was our manager. He um, stepped up and was and was like, you know what? I'm going to play drums and learned all the drums like for that tour within a couple of days. And we wound up bringing Mike, you know, as our tour manager. Mike just got drunk the whole time. He didn't know what he was doing. But um, that's how that's how like Chris got into the band. And then shortly after, um, 
you know, our bass player, again, you know, we're all growing up. So our bass player got an opportunity to get a really good union job. And he did. And, um, you know, he had a lot of responsibilities. He in inherited his house uh, when his mother passed. And, you know, it's just time to turn the page. So um, he got a job and then Gook started playing in a band with us. And, um, you know, it was cool, but it was a big shift in the dynamics because we had a whole different rhythm section. And um, our whole mindset right then was we just wanted to turn it into like a, uh, you know, a, a touring machine or, or you know, um, I don't know. It was kind of messed up because some of the members wanted to go more pop and some of the members wanted to keep it, um, you know, go harder. So there was a push pull with that. But um, I mean, that was sad to say it was kind of the beginning of the, of the end of agents really because we we had lost the initial uh influence of what the band was you know what i mean as great as uh count your blessings is um you know i love the ep you know so we kind of started shifting our, our writing folk like our writing was our focus was off it was a little all over the place in my opinion but it made for a good record you had two tracks that you'd sent me sometime after count your blessings is coming out as like what we're like beginning of what was supposed to be some newer tracks. And I definitely think that you still had some life in you, but I remember you, I remember you guys being on tours. I remember seeing you guys like getting mentioned in like legit magazines. And then it was just kind of like, okay, agents is done with. Yeah. Well, you know what? It was, it was, um, I mean, it was a good little run that we did. It was probably, we probably started writing agents in 99 or 2000. First EP officially came out in 2001. And then maybe we stopped playing by 2006, 2007. So um, we did have, still have some life in us. And, and some of that material that you're talking about is some of my favorite agent songs. So we kind of came back into the swing of things as far as our style goes. But around the Count Your Blessings time, it was, I remember it was, you know, some members really wanted to go more pop style, um, where I wasn't really so much for that. You know, it was a little bit of tension in the band. But it all came back together. But the reality was, we, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have a job that I could work at, you know, where I could come and go and do a tour and they would give me five weeks. You know, again, everybody, if you did a tour back then, it was five weeks. It was pretty much a minimum, unless you were going to Japan, you know what I mean? Which would be like 10 days. So even with that, you know, what job do you work at that's going to let you break out for 10 days? You know what I mean? So I was fortunate enough to be in a position that I could do that. But it was getting harder for somebody like George. So it got to, again, a point where George couldn't do it anymore. And, you know, he was a hard guy to replace. You know, I guess in hindsight, we could have tried to find another singer or, or whatever it was. But at that time, we just like, fuck it. You know what I mean? And um, I, I started doing some other stuff after that. Like I started um, playing, you know, even though on one of the agents tours, um, I think Gabby was playing in Danny Diablo, which was not all the it was like Isaac doing like a lot of Scarhead songs or different songs and different hardcore covers. So um it was him, AK Ray. No, was AK Ray in the band? No, I'm sorry. It was him. Um Saab was on guitar. Yes. Goop was drums. No, Goop was playing bass and Jimmy Williams was playing drums. So on that tour I got down with uh you know Gabby broke out so they asked me to play guitar and I started playing guitar with Isaac in that project. And then, like, shortly afterwards, he asked me to go out on a run with, I think, like, doing a stillborn fest. Like, remember how Jamie used to do that all the time? Yeah. Like, 
So um, Isaac asked me to do a run with that. And it might have been Danny Diablo or Scarhead. I can't even remember. But that was one of the first times I just went out with him. And even though me and Isaac knew each other for a long time, like touring wise, we really hit it off and clicked. So then, um, you know, I kind of, as, as shit was running out with agents, I kind of shifted gears a little bit and started fucking around with Isaac and, and the Scarhead thing. And then I did the Danny Diablo tour and we went on the Warp tour and, for a little bit until until we got kicked off the warp tour and did a whole US run. <laughs> of course you got kicked off the warp tour. <laughs> but but that was crazy. Even with the warp tour it was crazy because it sucked. Cause it was like at first we kind of you know we felt like out of place or whatever, you know, because it's a lot of Cali bands and um, you know, I guess whatever. We we weren't really out of place, but we looked different from them or whatever it was. So right as we got kicked out of the Warped Tour, we we realized, you know, that how much we had in common with everybody and we're just getting friends with everybody. And of course, some production manager was an asshole and it was really his fault. I, I think he slapped Gook uh, on the chest or something like that because he was pissed that he took a piss backstage and then they wound up fighting and he beat him up. And the guy was like a bleeder, you know what I mean? So he just yeah. like started this fight and then got beat the fuck up and then we got kicked off the fucking tour but it sucked but it was fun you know for the short time that we were on it um but yeah so i I started doing that and then um i think i worked for a little bit and then i got laid off and i told isaac like yo if you need a guitar player i'm fucking gonna be out of work for a little while and then shortly afterwards he asked me to do a scarhead tour in europe and um i even remember there was a time Maybe this is later on when you you helped write a whole Scarhead record. Yeah, well, that was right after that. That was right after that. So, well, or shortly after that, I think we did. I think we did the tour in Europe, and then I think we did another tour where it was Bulldoze and Scarhead. Yeah, you guys like, played a benefit show for me at the church. Yes, I have pictures from that too. I got to find. I got to dig them up. I got some good pictures from that. But yeah, we did that, and and that was a whole tour. So that was probably the worst idea in the world to have Bulldoze and Scarhead going. <laughs> you had Kevin and Isaac in a band together. <laughs> yeah. Yo, I don't know how many nights it was like, uh, you know, all right, let's pack the equipment and let's get out of the state now. You know what I mean? And Lionheart was on that tour. I yeah, that was they- their uh, that was their first fucking tour. And they were kind of like, yo, we just want to be on this tour. We'll bring gear. We just want to be a part of something. And that really got their teeth cut in just touring. Yeah, they definitely saw. We we definitely we definitely showed them the ropes. But fuck <laughs> that was it was crazy because that's like right when I was working and I, I started working my union shit. I think I was hired and I had to go to training after the tour. So that was also like, I, oh man, it was it was like I remember I stopped smoking on that tour and it was like the Easy Money movie with Roddy Dangerfield. Like everybody was smoking weed around me and I was trying to not smoke weed and it was just a crazy five five week run of mayhem but um shortly after that tour i think the isaac wanted to do a record and um i remember he was asking me if i was down and i was like yeah so you know i'm used to like agents of man and everything and you know we would really iron out these songs or even with bulldoze you know we'd go jam out in the room until we had an idea so I asked Isaac and I was like, yo, you know, when when are we going to get together and jam and uh, figure this out? 
And he's like, yo, jam. He was like, we're not going to jam. This is hardcore, you know? He was like, um, you know, we're going to just go in and we're going to record the record. And I'm like, all right. And I'm like, so, so I'm like, well, fucking, what do you want it to sound like? Like, like, like what do you want to do? And he's like, ah, uh, like uh, Suicidal Tendencies first record or the New York Hardcore Comp, the green one. And then he like hung up on me. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I think I, I think I got it. So we did that. And that was bugged out because I was doing training at my job during the days. I was driving out to Astoria uh, in Queens at, and Dean, um, at Dean's studio. And I would go and lay down a lot of the songs. And they were pretty much written on the spot. And um, I would leave. And then a couple of days later, I would hear like Siv on one of the songs I wrote or, you know, Armand or something. So it was bugged out because there was a lot of people that I grew up listening to that were getting on these songs. And um, I couldn't really stay because I had to work the next morning. You know what I mean? So I didn't see like what was it. But it was all done in the studio, bro. I had never written like that. And I thought it came out really good. Riggs was on that record. He's one of the greatest drummers ever. Um, Aaron, you know, who was in um, Scarhead and even White Trash, who I also saw at the Cricket Club one night, Small World. But um, he wrote a couple songs. Like there was a bunch of writers on that record, but I, I... I wrote like five or six songs and I played on the majority of them, you know, like the rhythm parts. That was a, which, which record was that? The, uh, drugs, music, sex. Yes. Drugs, music, sex. Cause there was yeah. drugs, money, sex. And then he did drugs, mu music, sex. And, yeah. uh, I remember he came through Philly and Isaac had this entire line about rigs. There was only one drummer in hardcore that we could get. He was the one who did too much cocaine and kicked out of hate He got kicked out of man ball areas. And we were like, Oh my fucking God. And you're yeah, like, he, he like, says that every okay. single night he says that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Scarhead was by far one of the funnest or is one of the funnest bands that I was ever a part of. You know what I mean? Very, you know, focused around having a good time. You know what I mean? I would honestly say that's what Scarhead's about. And, uh, Isaac's fucking great. Dude, what's funny is, is like you guys would be up there smoking or just chilling and hanging out, and he was super serious about like folding the merch. Like, I gotta keep this shit counted. These motherfuckers you can't trust these motherfuckers anywhere. I gotta do this shit by myself. <laughs> You're like, he's like one you know, of the, the most random people with what he's gonna ask you to do. It'll be something super crazy. And uh, I was on house arrest, so I couldn't get to the show until after. Like I had a, like wasn't allowed to leave the house before. I got a text by Greg Daly, the dreadlock dude who works with his hardcore. It's like my boy. And I'm like, how's the show? He said, Isaac showed up in a fur hoodie with no sleeves. <laughs> Sounds about right. Oh, it's fucking great. That's the, the, um, another thing that in, in the interim, as we're talking about you shifting into Scarhead, um, as early as 2000, there was a, there was a bulldoze show or two, right before agents started playing. And then there was more bulldoze shows in like Oh four Oh five in that time frame, And then you guys would even play even later on, like the time we're talking about now. So you still had a connection with Kevin and he was actually out now and he was playing some shows. Yeah. So they did, um, we did a couple shows. I think we did Puerto Rican Mike's benefit at um, Chrome. And um, and that was like a really good show. Uh, Hatebreed played it. I forgot who else played. Maybe Vietnam. There was just like everybody. Scarhead probably like a big benefit for Puerto Rican Mike. So we did it that. We did a couple shows. 
And then while we were doing agents, um, I think towards the end, we, we got Rosario um, again was playing drums because we did a separate tour and Chris at the time was not doing agents. And then Chris wound up getting together a different lineup to do Bulldoze. And the one tour, like the last tour that agents did in Europe, um, which was like a DIY tour in Europe, you know, it wasn't like, um, uh, what's no MAD or any of them guys. Yeah. yeah. They, MAD did all the tours, but they, they, this was done like pretty much by ourselves. And we got Jay Holland. That's my boy to drive. And, um, Bulldoze was out doing a run too. So we played a couple of shows out in Europe with them. And even one of the last shows, I think we all got, got up on stage and we want the original lineup wound up playing. Um, but they had a, a different version of Bulldoze for a minute too, that I wasn't really in, but, um, I was still hanging out. Like they did a, a stillborn. They also did a stillborn run, you know, stillborn fest run with Bulldoze. And I came out and roadied for that, you know, even though I was, wasn't playing guitar. How was that? Just like, just fun to be out there with the boys, but not having to be on stage. It was bugged out. Yeah. It was bugged out to, to, you know, cause it was my music, a lot of my music, but I wasn't playing it. You know what I mean? But it was good because, you know, again, Mike was, was doing it and Chris are doing it and Kevin and everybody. So it was just good to see them doing their thing and, you know, seeing the crowd still so into it, you know, cause, um, no matter what, like over the years, people have been into the bulldoze music. It's age, it's aged good, you know? So, um, it was cool, man. I had a good time. And at the same time, I was still doing agents. So it wasn't like I had a tear running down my cheek. Like I wanted to be on stage so bad or anything. It was kind of cool to sit back and watch everything. I feel like you, you and your career, if we're called a career, will be always seen as between projects that you have going on projects that are like in the works or like you're talking about and then things that you're playing live with. And when right around the time you were doing Scarhead, I don't know if it was because of E and him fucking with uh, Crazy Eddie or what you eventually would link up towards the end of the 2000s with, you know, the man himself, Eddie Leeway. Yeah. And start, and start Truth and Rights. And I know, I know you have, we talked about it earlier in the podcast, your love and respect for Leeway. And I mean, like you said, you go from, learning all these bands in New York hardcore from people. And then you end up playing and being friends with the people or they're singing on songs that you wrote. And now you're in a band with one of the bands that you fucking were turned on the hardcore by. Yeah. Which is crazy. Cause that's like entirely like true. Like the first hardcore show I went to see was Leeway. So a huge impression on me. And one of my first knowingly hardcore records that I was into was desperate measures. Um, so that was bugged out, but it was, that even happened. You know what? Eddie, we we started jamming with Eddie like years before that, before the Scarhead thing. But it was like we were jamming with leftover Agents of Man songs. And it was even like next level where they were more like pop songs or I don't even know what you would call them. Not so much pop, but very, um, I don't know, progressive hardcore or whatever the fuck you would label it as. But uh, it wasn't gelling. Whatever we were doing, it really wasn't gelling right. And then when I did do the Scarhead record, I remember we went to walk and get food and Eddie was there because he did one of the tracks. He's one of the songs I wrote, he sang on. So right there, I was like, oh, he, you know, I like what he did with that. And then we were talking, we went to go get food um, and went to some spot in uh, Queens. And I remember we had the conversation and I was like, all right, well, you know, let's let's get together and let's write something. 
And with that, I just dumbed down the approach and, and wrote it more like I was writing a Scarhead record and everything. And that turned into the Truth and Rights Project, which, um, you know, there still is a lot of melodic shit on there, but like Tommy Karate, you know, I wrote that. It was more of a straightforward, hardcore song. and um, Or even Sociopath, like you said, was more straightforward, hardcore song. But it was crazy because it was like to see us put out those riffs, you know, Eddie is a lot different of a singer than, say, your typical, you know, fast hardcore singer. So to see how he approached the song was bugged out, you know, because this is essentially one of my, you know, guys that I looked up to, you know, coming up. Well, think think uh, about his style. Like, think about the way he just breaks down those lyrics. Like, no one cuts up and, and has vocal patterns like him. Right. But then when we start talking, you know what? He's a big Van Halen guy, too, which if you think about it, you know, it's like, oh, OK, that makes sense. You know, I see the David Lee Roth there or, you know what I mean? Like, uh, so we had a lot more in common than we actually even thought. But it's it, it was that was a, a really cool experience, too, just to see how he would approach a song versus, you know, say, George or Puda or whatever. You know what I mean? Or Kevin or, or Isaac. I feel like the versatility, not just in what you write, but your ability to let the person who's going to sing on it, make it their own is a, is a hallmark part of like the style that you guys have put together, you know, whether it was from bulldoze and Kevin, even Kevin had like a interesting way. He broke things up versus say the way that, you know, Eddie would do it. And, you know, with George, the way he would sing, there was a lot of different uh, ways to cut up the way that you guys put your shit out there. And it's always interesting to see. It still sounds like you. I could tell when you're having a riff, which Obviously, as we start talking about this next thing you got going on, even your newest stuff, it still sounds like something you wrote. Yeah, it always, which is, which I, I is good. You know, you can always kind of tell I'm a part of it. So I guess, you know, I got a certain style or whatever. But um, yeah, man, I just been fortunate to work with a lot of, a lot of great people, a lot of great players and singers. Even Isaac is fucking, you know, he literally just writes all that stuff, or at least all the stuff that I fucked with, right on the spot. And I think it comes out great. You know, he's a super underestimated singer. Um, well, well, he's also, his drive is different than theirs. You know, he's looking at this like, I need to put this shit out there. I'm trying to make this shit happen. So he's like fucking driven. Yeah. You know, like he might be a crazy son of a bitch and he might have like a demeanor that you would misassume to be like, oh, he doesn't give a fuck, but it's actually the opposite. He's just trying to get out there and keep going. You know, it's cool. It's very cool to see. When we talk about the next stuff that you've been working on, you were doing truth, Reggie even did, you know, obviously I was really happy to have you be a part of this is hardcore and bring agents back out. But um, you always have, you're always telling me, yo, you got to check out this project. You got to check out this project. And you just actually, you started this label and you're putting things on Spotify and you have a new band. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. So we, um, so, well, actually, so, so one band we didn't talk about. So I also, when agents kind of stopped playing, I joined um, Homicidal. Which, oh, fuck. Like, Duh. Yeah. yeah. But you know what's crazy the- is, think about this. They're, they were as far back they were as far back as the pipeline days like they had that they had that track um them guys started linking together with the with the other band and then they put it together at the end of the 2000s 
2008. That's right. And you, yeah, you were in the band. Fuck, totally skipped over Homicidal at that time. <laughs> yeah, but you know what it was? It was it was pretty much Mike's project. Mike started writing. There was a lot of people in that band. At first, it was Mike, um, Seth, and Reek from Jersey Bloodline. So that was yeah. The first and then and then it ended up being McGee actually recording, and I and Seth was still in it. Yep. So all these different members. So um, when Agents stopped, um, I think there was a, um, I think there was a Puerto Rican uh, tour, a little run that they had booked or whatever. So Mike asked me to play in the band, and um, you know I said yes. You know, and um, he had all these songs, and we ironed out that record, and you know we did our thing with that. Um, which uh damn i forgot who even put that record out on to be honest with you but which one uh, the homicidal state of minds that was on not ferret uh Truskill? no eulogy i think i think eulogy. they released it That's yeah i think bad. um so there was a ep as i was saying before that was just like a hardcore band and one of the f- features was like these crazy crank phone calls that your friend did right and then, so when Homicidal was coming out, Enrique, RIP from New Jersey Bloodline, initially was going to be the singer of Homicidal. And they had actually done some recordings with him. But yep. then he was also doing another band as well, a different band too. And yep. Hell Brigade was the other band that he was involved in. And then they brought McGee, our boy, back to be the vocalist for Homicidal. And if you listen to the tracks i truly believe that especially and it always pissed me off because in 2008 2000 late 2007 early 2008 that was probably the purest back to the original style of like what if you, i don't even like using the term but it's easiest is the beat down leg of hardcore homicidal then in 2007 and 8 and hardcore and homicidal in 2019 when they played this hardcore the pre-show still the best representation of a merge between the original shit, but the original dudes who wrote it with a modern twist. And I remember hearing the, the, the first track unbreakable was the first thing I heard. I was fucking blown away by it. And I remember that you guys came down to Allentown, Pennsylvania and played a show for Chris Mushmouth at, in the basement. And the same night life agony was upstairs. There was more people going fucking nuts for Mushmouth in the basement than there was for Life Agony. And I remember seeing you guys and just being like, this is like Because it was everything. It was all the chaos, all the fucking excitement, but it was a brand new fucking band. I mean, you even had Stickman. like You had all the old guys out there in the pit with a brand new band, and it was fucking absolutely awesome to see. Yeah, and that was was me, Mike Heinzer from One for One, uh, McPhee, Mike, you know, The Bull, and uh, Demi. You know, who's yeah, awesome. little Demi. Yeah. And he's so been was- in every fucking band in New York hardcore ever, too. Yeah, that's my guy. I mean, that we we jam all the time. Even when I actually even when I wrote the um, Scarhead songs, like me and Demi got together to jam before that, because I was like, you know, I had to write with some drummer before I went in the studio. So that's always been my guy, man, even to this day. But Demi, yeah, so Demi was also doing Eddie Leeway at the time, too, the, before he before he became doing full leeway myc he was doing eddie leeway at that time at that like literally within the same year that homicidal 
was uh, playing, he was starting to fuck with uh, he was starting to fuck with Eddie. And then when Eddie did, it was a couple years later. He actually was playing one of the first times we ever did Eddie Leeway. Demi was a drummer for that. Yeah, which was a great another great lineup with him and Pasta and Mark and um, ah, who's the fucking bass player, the metalhead bass player, but he's great too. Um, but yeah, Demi's a great great drummer. So and homicidal was totally fun. Like I remember we went on the one we did a one tour in Puerto Rico and um, the guy. Um, that brought us out there. He wanted us to hang out like in this apartment and play uh, video games. We were like, nah, bro. So we made this guy take us everywhere. And at the end of the trip, he was like, yo, I've seen more of Puerto Rico in this weekend than I have in my whole fucking life living here. Like we had the greatest time, but uh, yeah, homicidal. That was a good record. I thought. And um, you know, it was just another thing. It was like, um, you know, we did that record and then just life happens. You know, our, our singer, you know, went through a separation and he had to deal with all that. So we really couldn't get behind promoting the record. And, you know, it just kind of fizzled out. Um, but Homicide was great. And then, um, yeah, the new project that I had was, you know, Homicide. We were trying to write, you know, towards the end and it just wasn't working. But me and Mike had all these ideas, uh, you know, for songs and for riffs. So I can't exactly remember how it came into conversation. But, you know, my man BJ, who sang in Full Scale Riot um, in that band with this drummer, Evan, you know, is my boy back from the early, early Bulldoze days. He used to be in a band called GMK and then later in a band called Ghidra. Um that had, um, you know, this guy Mark on guitars who used to play in Atlas Shrugged. Now, uh, it's just all one big circle. Like Chris from Atlas Shrugged, he did a lot of the Bulldoze uh, record releases and stuff like that, CD releases, uh, Trip Squad Records. Yeah, Trip uh, Trip Machine, right? Trip, my, my bad, Trip Machine Records. And, um, you know, so I've known him and I've known BJ and all of them for years, you know, back since like 94, 93. And um, we always want, I always wanted to do a project with him because I respect him as a singer. He's very energetic, you know, he's always dancing. So we started jamming with him and his drummer, Evan. And, um, you know, we went up to Nyack. They went down here by Rawway. And then um, the guy, Evan, was like, yo, I got a, a rehearsal studio. And uh, no, not a rehearsal studio. I got a studio, you know, if you guys want to, you know, we could practice up here. I know it's a long drive, but we could also record. So we're like, all right. So we started doing that. And um, his, his partner in the studio is Travis from Coheed and Cambria. So um, and they just they they do all different types of music there. You know what I mean? Like uh, little side projects that, that they have or whatever. So um, we started laying down some ideas. And, um, you know, Travis, who I, who I had met back in the day, um, from shows because they're from Nyack, you know, Coheed's from Nyack too. And that's right by Suffering where Kev used to live. So we used to, you know, we had a big history up there and playing shows up there too. So I met them back in the day. So long story short, we started jamming out and then um, Travis got into it and he started playing bass. So we got a new project that we did and it's called Zero Trust. And it's me on guitar, Mike, um, you know, the bull on guitar, BJ on vocals, Evan on drums, and Travis from Coheed on bass. And um, it's crazy because we started that project like right before COVID hit. Like the one night while we were lying down drums for, you know, 
one song that we had together down. Um, we were literally recording the music. And at the first break, uh, BJ was like, yo, Tom Hanks and his wife has COVID. And we're like, oh, shit. And then it was like, we recorded another track. And after that break, he was like, and the NBA shut down for the rest of the year. So that we're like, oh my God. So we all started talking and how crazy everything was. And that was like the beginning of this whole lockdown shit. So, um, you know, that was the last time we went to the studio for a while. We all started emailing songs back to, back and forth to each other. And I would just record a riff to a click track, you know, send it to them. And then the drummer would put drums to it later that night. So we recorded like eight songs during the whole pandemic. And um, I'm really, really excited about it, man, because it's definitely a different um, chapter, if you will. You know, it's a, a little bit different sound than anything that I've done. But then again, it's a little familiar, you know, because it, you could hear our styles in there. And, um, you know, we we're probably going to put a single out with Equal Vision Records. Um, so, you know, we have that all mixed and we just shot uh, two videos and um we're going to see what happens with it. But uh, that's my newest project. And that's what I'm most excited about right now. And that's what I've been working during the whole COVID, aside from, you know, working at home and my kids homeschooling and this whole shit. But, you know, if nothing else, I've been just lucky enough to have that gratification out of creating something that I'm into. You know what I mean? Well, I feel as if you spent so much time constantly. Like, There's not been much of a break in anything you've done. And I mean, now we're talking about almost 30 years of playing shows and 30 years of writing music with people and jamming with people. And so I'm amazed and just excited for you once again that you're trying to push yourself the direction again, for those who will check it out. There's no way you're not going to tell Mike and Zach had their hand in it, but it definitely is an elevated beyond just a hardcore sound. And I definitely think that people are going to appreciate it. One of the one of the things that constantly I'm being reminded is not only that you this whole time have been playing, but just when you talk about Demi and like you know Pasta, all these people that you have had you know jump on sets with or just toured with, you've had so much influence from so many people that you have literally had like an entire well 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 to draw from for influences and ideas over this entire thirty year period with people that you have you know just either hung out with and been friends with and then would write with or just fuck around with. And I, I, I understand that just hearing your, uh, your new, your newest shit with the tracks you sent me that this is the culmination of all that. Yeah, it really is, you know, and it's, um, you know, the, uh, again, um, you know, with the, the guy, BJ, he's, he has a very big vocal range. So, you know, it's been fun to work with a singer that has a lot of range, you know, similar to, you know, working with Eddie or, or um, George and, um, you know, we're still writing. We're, st we're still writing songs as you speak, but we got eight in the bag. So I'm really excited about it. Excited to see what happens with it. And um, and I did that. And also during the pandemic, I did the a new Scarhead EP. So Isaac just signed. Um, he's doing a e putting out an EP with Force 5 Records. And we all flew out to Milwaukee to record this record um, with Force Five Records. And um, it was the same type style. Like I remember the guy, the, the owner of the record company was like, yeah, because he was going to have this bass player play on the project. And, um, you know, he asked me, uh, 
or me and Demi, if we could send them a couple copies of the song, you know, just so the bass player could get familiar with it and maybe, you know, send a video of how, you know, what we're doing on the fretboard or whatever. And I was like, yo, you know, we haven't written them yet. And the dude was like, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, nah, we ain't write them yet. You yeah, know? we ain't got that yet. <laughs> and this is like three days before it's supposed to come out. <laughs> but again, you know what? And that's just, this is totally, it, 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 I'm, I'm really blessed because I got to do two different projects this year. You know, the one, Zero Trust, you know, we put a lot of thought into and had a lot of conversations on where the song should go or whatever. So the other was Scarhead, where we hardly put any thought into it and just threw it down. You know, of course, we vetoed whatever we thought was whack or whatever. It wasn't like we recorded anything, but, you know, it was a very... Um, organic approach and uh sometimes if you think about it too much you ruin it you know and uh so it was cool but it was definitely a lot of fun you know just to even get out of the house during the pandemic i hadn't seen you know i had pretty much been uh quarantined from a lot of people so it was cool to go out with these guys to um milwaukee to play and yo big shout out to your boys who you put me up on, and usually to everybody that doesn't know, Joe Hardcore, me and him are old friends, and he's always sending me some kind of fucking band or whatever, because he always, you know, obviously he's got his ear to the street like no one other, and he's always turning me on to these bands. But he sent me this band, MH Chaos, peace to MH Chaos, my Chicago brothers, and tried to put me on to them. But I was like, yo, I'm already, yo, you just heard about that? You know what I mean? Because I had already heard about them. But they saved the day, man, because when I went out there, I didn't have a rig to play with. Well, I didn't have the rig that I needed. Like, I asked the guy to get me a 5150 or a 6505 or something that I could fuck with easy. And they had this other rig that just was not working out. I could have made it work, but, you know, I'm there. I'm, I didn't have a lot of time to record the record. So um, I, you know, would have spent the day trying to fig figure out how to work this amp. So these dudes brought their rig from Chicago, you know, totally saved the day. And that's what I recorded on uh, the record with. So that's another thing I'm pretty excited about because it's coming out awesome. God knows who the fuck Isaac's going to have sing on this or, uh, you know, whatever. But, you know, I actually got a copy of, of one song with vocals I heard last night. So it's going to be called The, the um, Generators of Violence. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's so fucking good. I yo. Now let me let me just twist your head on this one for a minute. So, had you guys not done bulldoze, MH Chaos probably never would have been able to come and help you do what they do because they they put so much, especially Ashi and the guys. They love that entire sound, and you guys are the forebears of it. So them that band has just like such an insane respect and excitement for the entire scene that it, it doesn't shock me at all that they would drive out and just save the day because to them they're like this is the fucking coolest thing that we get to now just as you said like you get to know the people that you know in these bands you're now recycling that you know the, the thing that kevin would introduce you to people now yeah they're getting introduced to their heroes. And I think that's a huge part of hardcore that kind of gets lost. Is that like, no matter what stage you're at, whether you're going to show your first shows playing and going in the early nineties or your, your first shows and playing where just a couple of years ago, we're all in the same thing. And that kind of gets lost. 
and you being in so many bands and playing for so long have never lost step with that. Like, uh, you're always a guy who will just come down with something like, yo, I think I'm about coming down for the show. And it's always great to have you, whether you came down to the church shows and stuff like you never broke your connection with hardcore. So you're still so fresh and exciting, excited about it, which is why it's so cool to send you music because you will still appreciate it. Yeah. And even just the love, like I, I didn't really know these guys. You know, I had met, we were trying, me and Evan were trying to do a show in Chicago. So we had communication there. And from there, I got friends on social media. But, you know, for them to look out like that is just crazy. And I mean, that's such a big part of the hardcore thing. You know what I mean? Which goes back to our friendship, you know, and how we would show each other love, whether it was in Philly or Jersey or wherever it is. You know, that's that's a big part of this whole hardcore shit is just the love and shit that uh, respect or, or uh, looking out for each other, you know, whether for whether it's just maybe dancing for somebody's bands you know although that's that that that's been years for me you know if people aren't moving or fucking you know coming out to bring somebody you know a piece of equipment that they need or, or whatever it is or, or giving somebody a ride from the airport to wherever you know what i mean like everybody looks out for each other so it's good to see that that is still in today's generation and then um you know that that fuck they're that they're an amazing band you know what i mean Dude, it's incredible that they're at the, the the beginning of the stage of this. And I find that sometimes in hardcore, people have always looked at some of the harder bands. And this goes back to you guys is like, there's a, not a dark cloud and like, a, but there is like a limitation. Factor. Oh, well, you know, that's just as hard. There's nothing, you know, there, it's like, it, it still has substance. And there's right. people that have always eschewed it and pushed away from it. And yet at the same time is some of the people in this entire culture are still the most real hardcore people I've ever met, regardless if they played in bulldoze and whatever band they've been in and what their band sounds like, or the name of the record. My mother, when I got arrested, my mom went through, I had a, a literally a, a written down in a book, every name and every telephone number. I didn't even have a cell phone mm. and I'm in, I'm in County prison and I finally get my phone call and she's like, I got great news. And I'm like, all right, you get the lawyer. She's like, Isaac's going to do a benefit show. That was the first thing she said to me. I said, what the fuck are you talking about? She said, I went through your whole, I called everybody and I called Isaac and he answered. I said, my son, Joe Hardcore's in jail. And he said, well, I'll do a benefit show for you. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's Isaac. He's the yeah. generator, generator of violence, drugs, music, sex, drugs, money, sex, you know, like whatever you want to say as a person about, and Kev won, you know, like Kevin came and did my benefit show. Like I've always found that the people who are most attached to our culture often get this like, oh, well, those are those kind of guys. And it's like, nah, man, they're some of the realest motherfuckers you're ever going to meet. And they'll be there for you first selflessly before so many people that kind of get, you know, put up on a pedestal. It's like, this guy is so amazing and he's such a great thing for hardcore. It's like, nah, man, like this is what this is. This is our world. And so I'm just proud and happy that MH chaos, not only do we get to help them, but they, they really stepped up and they they're following in the line with everything that we kind of came from, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cause it was, it was seriously saved the day. Like it, I was like bugging out and I didn't really think of them. It took me a minute to think of them. You know what I mean? Cause they're not my people, my close close peoples or weren't at least at the time but i was like you know what let me call them and see what's up and we could you know drive out there or whatever 
And they're like, yo, we'll come up tomorrow and hang out. And I was like, word. Dude, and they that's, did. that's the, I mean. And left at- the equipment there. Like, they, they didn't even have any questions. Like, yo, is this guy a scumbag and going to run with my shit? You know? So they left us with the equipment because they had to break out and wound up getting it later. But, you know, again, it was just on this, this, this love, you know, just on some fucking common hardcore uh, respect type shit. Think about is- all the to- think about all the touring you've done. Think about all the places that you've been to take you out of North Jersey and take you out of what would have been all you know had it not been for hardcore. And these yeah. are the common values that we all share. And touring as much as you had and been exposed to so many different people, it's such a weird world where we're the ones that will always jump up and stand for each other. You know, like it's not a thought, you know, like versus a thousand other music scenes where that would just be like, I can't fucking help you out. What happens in my gear? You know, like yeah. some very selfless moments in hardcore that completely endear us to it forever because it's not just it's it's more than just a music, it's a complete culture and it's a complete group of humans that are trying to see everybody move forward and push forward, you know. Yep, the amount of houses I stayed at people that fed me or made sure I could shower or whatever it was, you know, that I I probably met that day, but maybe they knew you or or whoever. And there was a common link and it's crazy how people just look out for each other, which is one, aside from the music and everything else, it's just one of the things I really, really love. And I would see a lot more of it when I toured, it was touring heavy, but you know, again, that in this gruesome 2020 year. One of the things I'd like to ask you, they even came up the pandemic. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No fucks given. No fucks given. Fucking no masks, you know? They they, they washed their hands or whatever, but they came out. They even had that excuse to throw in that. Nothing. So. What I was going to ask you is, after doing all this, talking about your entire, like, timeline, now that you look at it, do you feel like you still had room for new influences as you were continuing to push yourself musically? Yeah, definitely. Always. And what do you like um, as a musician? Because I'm not a musician. How how would you how would you say the trajectory of like what you started off with versus what you like you know started emerging yourself in? How did you keep like fresh ideas in your head through this whole time? Um, that I don't know, but whatever inspires me inspires me, and then just playing with different people inspires me. But like, for example, you know, a band like MH Chaos will inspire me to write some hard shit. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, look at where these kids are taking it. Or um, I don't know. I guess it's just music, man. At the end of the day, I love music. It's not even just hardcore. You know, I could listen to some R&B that might inspire me to write a hardcore song. It's just, I guess, or maybe I know I could do it. And I know that's my lane. You know what I mean? Like, that's feels so good to do a Scarhead record that I don't really have to think about. You know what I mean? But uh, well, I definitely think the multiple, in, like your influences go far beyond the, oh, I only listen to the first X amount of records and I don't listen to anything. You've always been someone that would go ahead and would specifically check out bands. And you always, you know, you were, you're a metalhead through and through regardless. So there was always a metal, metallic influence. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot that I see that would influence you to continue, but I didn't know if there was like, Oh, you know, at this period, I started only listening to this or, you know, there was methods of things that you did to kind of keep your influences fresh. 
No, no. With that, I don't. When I'm writing something, I really don't listen to it. Like even with this new stuff with Zero Trust and we're writing so much, I'm more influenced off of other people in the band's ideas. You know, like, for example, the guy Travis, um, you know, Mike, I've been influenced with, you know, for a long time. So he it's working with him. It's always, you know, OK, you got that riff. I got another riff to, to put with it. But even with somebody like working with somebody like uh, Travis from Coheed and Cambria, who is, I guess, from the same school, but t- uh, at the same time, a totally different school. Um, but working with him and seeing how he approaches a song, it's just like. It, it, it's like, oh, okay, I could run with that or I could put something to that. Or, you know, the same thing like we're working with Eddie Leeway. It's just to see how different people approach songs. And uh, I guess that influences me um, more than a band's per se. You know what I mean? But um, I don't know. I, fi- I find it in everything. I don't know if it's really one thing or that I could figure out. But, you know, I get engulfed in other people's writing or their, um, their uh, what is it called? how they write or or, or or the ideas that they have will spark, you know, get me motivated to write. Well, obviously Mike and you have something special and it's something, obviously it's, it, how does that make you feel? And when I say it to you that what you and Mike put together so many years ago is a foundation moment that so many bands still emulate and, take influence from how does that make you feel and then you know what are your thoughts on that you and mike have this amazing bond and able to write together so many years later and yet these bands are all that still come out to this day take heavy influence from some of your earliest stuff you've ever put out i i feel proud man like i accomplished something you know what i mean at the end of the day if i'm gone tomorrow you know and and you know the song beatdown still influences people or whatever it is then that's that's dope to me I, I left my mark here you know what i mean and to be able to do that with mike you know i mean that's my brother you know uh, if uh you know now we could get together and, and we have an excuse to get together because we're working on, on music but you know otherwise you know we would get together to go out and eat or i would help ask him to help me put together a shelf or something like that's like my my brother slash friend from year from you know, for years. Um, so, you know, our families are tight and everything. And to be able to to be, you know, I'm 44 right now and to be able to still get together and write music that, you know, hopefully people are into is amazing. You know what I mean? Because I never, um, I always hoped I would be doing this now, but, you know, as time has passed and I've gotten other, you know, made a career or whatever it is, you always think it's over, you know? So for, uh, for it to still, you know, to get a phone call for, from you about playing This Is Hardcore, whatever it is, and, you know, for it always to come back is just, it's it's amazing, man. I can't be grateful enough because I love it. You know, I love the music. I love the scene. And the fact that kids are into it still, you know, it's that's much more gratification than, well, who knows? I've never been rich. Maybe if I was rich off my music, I'd be a lot more gratified. But, you know... <laughs> Playing this is hardcore, you know, we got like regulate, you know, they were bigging us up, um, you know, all these bands, twitching tongues, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, we were talking to the singer and he was telling me how they went out to see us in Cali and he's telling me the story. And I'm like, yo, I remember that night. You know what I mean? And I remember the crowd was real and they were getting busy and everything. So like just to see, you know, a band like that and how um, 
how good of a position they're in and how they totally have their own style. And to think that, you know, I influenced them a little bit in that, you know, is, is amazing. Or to see a band like Regulate, you know, and their kid, you know, they're not kids, no disrespect. They're, they're, I'm sure they're grown. But to me, they're the younger generation repping it. It's amazing. You know what I mean? So now it's, you had a, you have a heavy hand in the influence. And actually, one of the coolest things that I've seen a band do, and I hope more bands start doing it, is that you actually took control and you have on Spotify now both bulldoze and the train of thought stuff under your label. Yeah. Well, we were lucky, man. We never, um, we could, we, you know, I will, or maybe we weren't lucky, but we never, we never bulldoze never got signed. So we own all, all that shit train of thought. We own all that shit. Um, I'm going to be putting out the agents, a man EP, which we never signed off on. Um, I also have a copy of the count your blessings record that uh, is going to be called cutthroats. Cause we basically recorded that whole thing before it was a record and it's funny because we wanted something more polished now but me listening back to it is it's actually a better representation than the count your blessings records because it's a little more hardcore um but i'm going to be putting that out and then i'm also going to be putting out you said two songs there were actually three songs that were recorded towards the end and i'm going to be putting that agents of man release out too so it's cool because like you said we, we still have our hands on everything um, I was going to do the homicidal record too, but I guess they still have, you know, they still got that up on Apple music. It's not on Spotify. So that I don't know what's up with, but, um, I also might put out the early one for one stuff, like the, the original demo and their seven inch. Cause, uh, I want to document that I was even trying to like reach out to other bands, you know, to get them to put this stuff out. I'm not going to name who, but you know, to get some of these Jersey bands out and on the map. Cause I feel like a lot of people have been um, these younger kids have been into like researching that, you know what I mean? And there were so many good bands, but you know, we'll see what happens. But, well, I think um, that there's definitely a need for the preservation. And I think that there's a need for someone like you, not a third party to make sure that these bands get seen. I mean, obviously uh writ to life had a big hand and getting new jersey hardcore beyond new jersey at a certain time and i feel like at a certain point like that that ever between 94 and 99 was really special within new jersey because there were so many bands that was one of the best hardcore scenes period in the country because you had north shore you had brunswick you had our part of south jersey you had central there was constantly shows so many different kind of bands. There was the middle sex stuff. There was all these venues and all these things happened because Jersey was so fucking central that anyone would travel to New Jersey from out of town. And I feel like post that era, the bands that didn't have records on labels got lost. And like when you, I mean, we've talked about so many bands just in this podcast, whether yeah. it's, a, you know, victim society, which went on to be one for one. And, um, uncle mark and hard knocks and money grip and you know there's a, we can shout out every single new jersey hardcore band but you think about also some of the best jersey hardcore bands are some of the best bands and like people still consider like e-town concrete fury of five you know whether you say mouthpiece ensign there's you know there's so many different kinds of hardcore that have all come out of new jersey and a lot of that got swept under the rug it's not getting touched on you know um Greg Mogaloids and his whole thing. And then the kids who are doing the shore style shows 
And, you know, there's a couple bands here and there that are starting to bring it from New Jersey, uh, our friends in Shackled. Uh, but there's really a need for some of the oldest stuff that we're talking about here to get put on Spotify and get seen to the world because there's this shit that was cool and you don't want to see it get left in the wayside, you know, like Elements, which is obviously your dudes, John and um, John Raj and Amazing Larry. Fuck, man, there's just so many bands that are kind of off to the side now, if you think about it, just because they're not these kids in the way that they interact with hardcore is all through Spotify and yeah. YouTube. So the algorithms push these kind of bands, these people who are listening to certain bands to other bands. So we need to get those bands in the mix so people could get exposed to them the way they're getting exposed to these other bands that I think are just kind of like not as good as these ones, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause there were so many good bands. So I'm going to see how many more I could put out, you know, um, but I'm definitely excited to get all that stuff up there. Even, uh, you know, especially the bulldoze, which has never been up and, never. you know, and you know, there's, there's, like you said, people call shit beat down hardcore, which to me is crazy. But Dude, they don't yeah. even call it hardcore. They're straight up got the core out of it. They're like, I listen to beat down, and I'm like, that's a hardcore thing. No, it's more like just beat down. I'm like, no, 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 it's <laughs> hardcore. But there's an entire world of humans that think, you know, and hey, fuck you, Mike, enemy Mike, my boy, uh, enemy mine, Mike. Uh, now one on one, he's one of the greatest purveyors of. I don't really listen to hardcore. I like beat down. <laughs> he's the fucking best. Total fucking. Goon. I think you told me about that first, and I was like, "Get the fuck out of here." Yeah, that's what, the <laughs> most. Goon, he's the most goonish motherfucker in the world, man. I love him, but like, he's he's one of a thousands of kids that they're in their own world with that stuff, and it's just a mind blowing thing that it all came from. You and fucking Mike. I got. I'm gonna do three quick questions, and we'll get you out of yeah. here because I know this has been running late, and you got a family and shit. No doubt, no doubt. The hardest question I'll ask first: What was yes. your biggest regret or chance that you didn't take in this entire music career of yours? My biggest regret was uh, that train of thought stopped when it did. I think that's my biggest regret. I wish we'd explore that a little more, especially with all the energy that there was going on at the time and what we were doing. So what, do you that, what do you think you would have done differently in that regard? Um, well, I, I, again, I don't know what I could have done to prevent that from happening, but I guess I would have just tried to maybe, um, keep, keep it together more. But, um, you know, I mean, then again, you know, who knows that regret led to other things in my life that, that, that came out very fortunate. So maybe you got to write it off to everything happens for a reason. But, um, you know, that was one of my biggest things, or, or maybe I would have been more productive in that time period. But then again, you know, I was doing things elsewhere that helped mold my life in different ways. So who fucking knows? What was the single worst show you've ever played? Oh God. Single worst <laughs> show I've ever played. It don't even have to be like the show was bad. Like what was the worst situation or, you know, I've heard people show up like, you know, I always say that we showed up to play a show in Albuquerque, New Mexico, stayed, at this, stayed out front of this kid's house. He fed us and we got to the venue. He said, hey, listen, we didn't promote, but me and my guy right here are really looking forward to see you guys play. <laughs> well, listen, listen, for all you young, aspiring hardcore musicians, I got to tell you, I've played tons of fucking horrible shows. All right. Sometimes that's it is what it is. But, you know, sometimes there's the two kids in the audience, whether they promote it or not, 
that, you know, is really hitting home for them. So it turns out to be all right. The worst show that I could think of that pops out at me is we played with victims. I have this poster somewhere. Victims of Society, Bulldoze, 25 to Life, and Carnivore at the Grand. Okay? I, at the time, was proud enough about this project and was doing all these wonderful things with Bulldoze and playing all these wonderful shows like this show. This was going to be a wonderful show, too, and it was a wonderful show. But uh, I invited my mother. My mother came out to Manhattan, took the train out to see me play at the Academy. It was called the Stanley Cup of Hardcore. Yes, it was. And I have that poster. So Stanley Cup of Hardcore. So I go and I bring my guitar, my guitar, and I put it backstage. We go out to get something to eat. I come back, and I think we we're playing second on that bill. I come back. My guitar is gone, all right? Nowhere to be found, all right? I'm looking everywhere. Somebody stole my guitar. Where on next? So I had to use fucking Fred from 25 to Life. Shout out to Fred. His V guitar. Now, 25 to Life was tuned to E for all you guitar players. Bulldoze was tuned to D. We dropped our tuning to give a, a harder sound. So I had to detune Fred's, God knows what type of uh, Flying V guitar. I don't know how it stayed in tune in E, but I can tell you his Flying V guitar tuned down to D was a horrible experience because it would not stay in tune at all. So I had to fucking turn the guitar off, right? Um, and I faked the whole show. And my mother came out to see me. You know, so that was like her first time really seeing me play a great show that I didn't even play. And this Pete Steele, rest in peace, was helping me look for my guitar before we went on the stage, right? And I'm into typo negative and all that, but I was so pissed because that was all I had back then and I didn't have a lot of money that somebody picked my guitar that... um uh, you know, I was like, whatever. I wasn't, you know, like saying, telling Pete Steele how great he was and how much of an influence or whatever. But when I got off of the stage, he had managed to find my guitar. His fucking people took my guitar and put it with their equipment. And my guitar was backstage in the backstage area. What a stand up dude. This Rest show was Carnivore, yeah. Sheer Terror, Marauder, 25 to Life, Bulldoze, Victim of Society, and Social Disorder at the Grand. April yeah. 23rd, 1994. Yep. Great show. But one of the worst experiences for me because I didn't actually play it. Damn. Now, <laughs> last last one. You have now had the fortunate ability to have played in a band with Isaac, Kev One, yeah. Eddie Sutton. And is there someone else in New York hardcore or hardcore in general, or just a metal in general that you'd like to see someone sing on music of yours? Not in hardcore, but anyone, um, anyone. Dave Lee Roth, bro. Diamond Dave Lee Roth. At that, shit. I would hang up my head. If I could ever get Dave Lee Roth to play on a track with me, then I, I re I'm going to retire. We we'll have to get some cocaine to get him going. We we'll had to fucking get him. We we'll had to get something going for him. Go ahead. Well, maybe Scarhead. We can make it happen. Dude, get the David Lee Roth Scarhead track would be the fucking craziest thing of all time. <laughs> Listen, that being said, the e the new EP Generators of Violence is still not finished. It might happen. 
Look at how much shit happened in 2020. You never know. I'm text. I'm going to text Isaac and say, this is what Zach really wants to see happen. Isaac yeah. Everybody listening to this. If you at all have any connections with diamond, David Lee Ross, please try to try to build that bridge. Hey, Zach, man, that's just literally the best way that we could have gone out with this one. I, I know we talked about doing this and I, and I'm just so excited that we got to talk about every aspect of what you had going on. And, uh, we're going to be pushing your stuff. Zero trust is a new stuff. Everybody listening, you got to check out Trainer Thought on Spotify. Check out Bulldoze on Spotify. I am saying this, and Zach will make it happen, but the Trainer Thought merch is going to be coming. I want to see some Trainer Thought merch out there in the world because I love that fucking band so much. Absolutely. Um, thank you for being a part of this. Shout out some social medias or a way people can reach out to you. And it was just a blessing. I, you know, we've been friends a really long time. I've always been a fan and just telling people like, dude, you don't really don't know how talented this human is or just how much you love hardcore and to the point where you just would come down with maximum penalty or come down with different bands just to hang in Philly and be a part of the fest or bring your wife down. You've always been one of the most affable people, even though in your own fucking hardcore rate, you know, you could have really been like, fuck you. I'm too cool for all this. And you've never been too cool. And I'm so glad that we got your story out there for everybody. So thank you. Hey, thank you so much, Joe. And you know how how proud of you and how much I look up to everything that you have done for the scene. So as soon as this shit lightens up, I will see you down in fucking Philly. And then uh, peace to all my Phillies people. And I'm going to stop at Tony Luke's on the way back to make sure they don't go under. Unless they did. <laughs> nah, they're, st- they're staying good. Uh, yeah, give us uh, websites or social media people should check you out at. Uh, you can check me out at ZachThorn11 on IG or, uh, you know, on social media. All my bands are up there if you want to uh, hit me up on Facebook. Um, otherwise, um, Agents of Man is coming out, Ruins Records, Train of Thought, Bulldoze, Elements, DEC. Check all that out. It's all available on all the streaming platforms. And peace to all my hardcore brothers and sisters around the world. Again, Joe, thank you for letting me do this. Dude, thank you so much. Have a great holiday. And... uh Good luck with all the projects, brother. No doubt. Love you, brother. Peace. Be good. Man, that was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it. Zach Thorne is an incredible dude. His story's great, and the conversation we had is something that I really hope that you guys got a kick out of. Go check him out. His internet stuff is all on our website, tihcpodcast.com. Check out Zero Trust. We're even going to link the video that they made for this. With some footage from Sonny Singh and Hey Five Six. Like I said earlier, like, share, comment, do all the things. On top of it, share our stuff. When you see us posting about it, repost. Help us get out there to the world. Next week's guest, Jamie Bissonette. He is one of the most well-known chefs, restauranteurs in the Boston area. He comes from New England Hardcore. His story is fucking fantastic. And it was a blast to finally have him. I've mentioned him on a couple different episodes. And it's finally going to air. Can't wait to have him. Once again, TIHCpodcast.com. I'm going to keep this one short. Thank you. Fuck 2021 being the uh, immediate change. It's going to take us a while to get there. But you got to have hope. You got to keep pushing forward. Don't just give up just because there's some crazy shit going on. It's going to take a lot to change, but I know we will. Thank you. Write me. Let me know that this podcast was awesome or that I suck. You can hit us up on all the internet stuff. T-I-H-C-Fest 
for this hardcore Twitter, the Joe Hardcore on Twitter and Instagram, and this is Hardcore Fest on Instagram, and yeah, we're on Facebook too. Take care.